Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to a very special session. Um, it's always special to join on a Saturday. But today, we actually have been leading up on our social media with a big announcement that we wanted to make. Um, people who received the weekly email probably already know a little bit about what I'm going to talk about. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of liberty to give a little bit of a lecture today. So <laughs> a little bit more than an introduction, not really. Um, but I'll try, try not to take too much time. So and I'm going a little old school, so I've got a little board here to, to help me. Um, so we have a very special announcement. It's something that has been in the works for a long time. And um, let me start by saying what the announcement is, because it's a little bit different. The intellectual revolution has the potential to begin. That's the announcement. That's the theme of my talk today. And I want to start by putting that out there and then starting with a little bit of history, because I wanted to share. We're going to do a little bit of book talking, a little bit of history today. Um, so you know, in, um, we've been doing this now for you know, 20, almost 30 years um, in the world of books, in the you know, world of education and learning. Um, and our journey started you know, back in, well, we met in 1995. Um, as far as book journeys are concerned, our book journey started with um, one of the sheikh's first publications. This is called The Authoritative and Authoritarian in Islamic Discourses. Some of you may know this book. It's known as sort of the orange book. Um, it was published by MVI, which is a part of Islamic Center of Southern California. And this was a long time ago. The, this was before the, the sheikh had his PhD from Princeton. Um, he was getting his PhD. He had finished all of his work. He was just writing his dissertation. And we were involved. We had you know, recently gotten married. And there was this, this uh, um, big to-do in the Muslim community. Um, the basketball player, Abdul Rauf, refused to stand for the national anthem one night when he was playing a basketball game. And this became a huge outroar because he claimed that, according to Islam, this would be wrong for him to stand up to the national anthem. And that triggered then a whole bunch of people coming out of the woodwork and issuing fatwas, you know, doctors, engineers, all kinds of people throwing around hadith that, you know, supposedly were the mic drop moment about why this was either true or not true. So it was a very interesting case study, and the sheikh took the opportunity to write just a little treatise. You can see it's really tiny and, you know, minimal. Um, talking about this case study. Now, he wasn't there to, you know, say whether it was right or wrong, but what was really offensive is how people would just, what he called, hadith hurl. They would hurl hadiths around um, and then make uh, Islamic pronouncements based on that. So he used that as a case study and that whole dynamic of what happened to talk about how do you actually deal with Islamic studies in, you know, in, a, in a proper way. And this term, you know, the authoritative versus authoritarian was used to, you know, describe what can be considered authoritative versus authoritarian. And as a side note, it's very interesting because before this book came out, no one ever used those terms, authoritative and authoritarian. But then shortly after, it became part of our regular vernacular. People would say, well, that's authoritative or not authoritative. But anyway, it started with this book. It started with a, a Muslim publisher. Um, and this book it was not, you know, it's like sort of typical of what we have come to associate with Muslim presses, which is not super high quality, like literally the way that it was published, you re read it once and it would fall apart. Um, and if you look at, you know, the cover is not particularly beautiful, orange is not a particularly, you know, exciting color. Um, and if you look at the insides in terms of how, you know, it's laid out, it's, you know, it, it's not very professional. It's not on par with you know, what you would get when you go to a bookstore and you consider buying, um, a, you know, a real book. 
Um, so this was the first go at it. And despite the fact that it didn't look beautiful, it surprisingly made a lot of rounds. And it, the, the content was so powerful that people bought it, fell in love with it. We met students years later who would come and, you know, like uh, when we were at uh, Texas many years later and did a book signing for a different book, people would come up with their orange copies, completely dog-eared, completely highlighted, falling apart, and they would come and say, I love this book, and I carry it around with me everywhere. And so it was amazing just the power of the content despite the presentation. Because this book was really valuable, um, and the content was really valuable, we decided to take another couple tries with Muslim publishers, because it's a Muslim, you know, it's a Muslim issue, and it's not something that can easily be published within a secular world. So this was take two, brown cover. This was Dartaiba. Um, I believe they were out of maybe Jordan. Um, okay, well, anyway, uh, another country. Um, and so it, again, not super beautiful. When you open it up, it's the same kind of thing. It's like got that feel. You know, all people who've seen, you know, all Muslims know this, this look, right? We have a lot of Muslim pamphlets, a lot of, you just know the minute you see it, what you're getting. Um, and, you know, we even had like, you know, a friend design this cover, but so, okay, you know, it was better. At least it didn't fall apart after you read it one time. So that was, so this was 1996. This one was 1997. This survived for a little bit. And then ultimately, take three, another Muslim publisher, um, 2002. A slightly better, the quality of the cover is a little bit better. The inside is laid out a little bit better. But again, it's not to the standard of what you would expect a typical high quality professional book. So, um, okay. So that was 2002 that that came out. Now, this, this was the title was out even Gary uh, Hartford was showing. Really? Really? Oh, okay. I thought that was, uh, oh, this was, okay. Sadawi. 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 I thought it was, that's not Khalid? That's Khalid, right? That's Khalid. Okay. That's not all right, <laughs> so maybe it was done without permission. Well, we were happy because it was an improvement, but it was still <laughs> like not great. Okay, so um, okay, so at that time, you know, like Muslim publishers in general, you know, like in a, I'll, I brought a few examples. Um, you know, Amana was a big publisher at the time, so now we're like at the two thousand mark, and um, you know, we we were interested at this point. You know, we we'd been involved with the Islamic Center of Southern California, and. Um, the Sheikh had been writing these articles in a column called Conference of the Books, and they were published in this magazine called the Minaret Magazine, which is around for many years, but it was a publication um, of uh, the Islamic Center um, through their MVI um, you know, publishing arm. Um, and so this collection of really wonderful um, essays, which now you know are part of the book Conference of the Books, were not collected. They were just published. And actually, when the Sheikh and I met, it's very interesting. We met in um, early 1995, and he had just completed the very first um, chapter of that whole collection, which starts out you know, in a small apartment outside of Princeton, New Jersey. So that's where, where, we, where I come into the picture. Um, and so by about the um, late 19, like 1999, 2000, we had a good critical mass, and we thought these are really valuable. It would be amazing to collect them together as a book and get it published. So um, I put together that manuscript, I collected the articles, I put together a marketing plan, and I decided, okay, I'm gonna try and send it out to all the different Muslim publishers and see if we can get it published. Um, and so, you know, I wrote, you know, like really nice kind of everything, whatever, you know, sent it out, and one after another after another, it was rejected. And I remember that at that, that time, the, the big publishers 
um, were Fons Vitae and, okay, so Amana. So this is an um, example of Amana. The cover, again, not beautiful. Um, you open it up and it again has that, sort of that same sort of ghettoized Muslim feel. Um, the best in the class was Fons Vitae, which was this, um, which is, you know, it looks more professional, looks more academic. They're still around today. Interestingly, Fons Vitae now is not just a Muslim publisher, but they do interfaith, so they actually publish books from other traditions, probably as a means to survive, I'm guessing. Um, and then the other one that was um, what I would consider top of class was the Islamic Text Society, which looks like this. And they published a lot of books um, on Al-Ghazali, and they're still around. And so um, this was probably the most, the closest, I mean, this to me is like on par with what you would get, you know, at an academic press. It's, this is impressive, but they're out of the UK. But as far as the US, the, um, I think it was, you know, typical, like Amana and a few other um, publishers um, that, that I'm sure people know. So all of those guys said no to conference of the books. So we said, okay, you know what? I know, I believe in this. Um, and so we'll just do it ourselves. And so we got in contact. I was aware of um, a publisher that was an imprint of Roman and Littlefield. Um, They're called University Press of America. Um, and this is a press that really existed for, um, you know, scholars who did really top-notch work. Um, as I mentioned, maybe sometimes a bit esoteric. Um, but the, the um, you know, the work deserved to be published, but people just recognized that this is not going to make a lot of money. So it was an imprint that was dedicated to allowing scholars to publish their work, you know, with the expectation that, you know, it's, they're, they're not money making, but they're doing something good for scholarship. But they asked that you, in order to use their, their press, that you provide everything for them. So you had to go and get the text, you know, copy edited, laid out on a page, camera ready, you go and you get the cover, you basically do all the parts, you are the, you know, the work, the, the legwork, and then you, you deliver everything to them and you write all the marketing copy and all that sort of stuff, and then they do the finishing bit of, um, of publishing it as a book, and then their distribution was minimal, you know, I mean, they, they made it available on Roman and Littlefield, but um, they were not actively marketing it beyond just the basics of putting it in their catalog. So thus, the conference of the books was born, and, you know, I remember finding this image, I remember finding the designer to create, you know, the, um, the cover, I remember writing all the copy, um, and then finding the person to lay out the insides, and this was the first version of Conference of the Books. You know, we really wanted to make it a beautiful book, so if you know, every single chapter begins with, you know, a lovely um, Arabic calligraphy, um, it's everything about it, you know, looks professional. And it was a really just a beautiful job. We made it in hardback, and then we also made it in paperback. Um, and so, um, alhamdulillah, it was born. And um, this was the first version. So um, this lived for, um, so it came out in 2001. Um, and this lived until the next version came out, which was in 2006. And this version actually, um, it was lovely because Roman and Littlefield recognized that it was doing well and they decided to republish it under their main, um, or their main uh, title. So it's actually, this is now published by Roman Littlefield itself, not University Press of America. Um, and so then this actually includes additional chapters that were written after the first one came out. So this has actually the complete set. And hopefully um, you guys have all read it because it's really amazing. So this process was really important for, for me from a learning perspective. And um, I, I found it, um, you know, I, it was it was all new and really interesting, but I felt so relieved that we could actually create something beautiful. And the the sheikh had written another 
manuscript that I thought was just brilliant. Um, well, actually, it was this, the author, you know, it was the, the content in this book, um, which is that whole case study. Um, and I wanted him, um, you know, by this time, a lot of things had transpired. This text had been out for a while. People had been talking about it. He has a few, um, you know, quotes and, and citations in there that were a little bit controversial about hijab and whatnot. So people were talking about it. Um, and a lot of things had happened, you know, and this was now post also 9-11. So, oh, sorry, no, not before this, but sorry, I'm getting my timeline off. It was not yet 9-11. But enough had happened that um, we felt it was a really good time for Sheikh to, you know, republish the meat of the authoritative and authoritarian and then add to it some commentary about what had happened since the first book was published. And so there was quite a lot to say. And so this book actually contains the total of this plus commentary and some really interesting insights. And this is like kind of, um, and we did this through the same UPA process. So actually, if you read in the introduction, it's kind of nice. He, he actually says, oh, you know, Grace kind of took it on and did it. And I just basically did the same thing here, got the cover design, got the image, did all the writing, you know, and all of that, and, and then it came out. Um, and it's such, um, and we've never really done marketing on this book, but it's been around since 19, you know, since, actually, okay, this came out 2001. So this came out in 2001, this came out in 2001. And it's survived, and it's made its way around, and it's been adopted in classes, and it's an incredible book because it's really like applied Sharia. And wonderfully speaking, you know, the sheikh just gave the keynote to the National Muslim Law Students Association a few weekends back, and they decided to buy this book and give it to all the people that are in their organization, which is really powerful because this is like what you need to know about Islamic law, and Islamic law is not the same as being a Muslim and then teaching Islamic law without training. So. Um, so alhamdulillah, and you can see that they kind of have a nice, you know, feel about them. Um, interestingly, so that was 2001. We had two other books that came out in 2001 because these things, um, when you work with the Muslim press, they take different time, you know, they're different timelines, especially when you work at w working with a publishing company that's much larger, they have their own timelines and their own deadlines. And so interestingly, um, this was uh, Rebellion and Violence in Islamic Law came out in 2001. This was actually Sheikh's dissertation, and this was published by Cambridge. So, um, and that came out in a hardback and a paperback. And I just want to point it out because, you know, when you compare, once again, you know, like best in class of um, Muslim press versus, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, you still see a significant difference. Um, and then the last book that came out in 2001 was Speaking in God's Name, and this was published by One World Press out of the UK. Um, and we, in both of these cases, we had really no input at all into the cover design. And so you can see that, you know, this has kind of an interesting image and some Arabic. Um, we, we had, I think, a, a little bit of maybe, we got to say, like, okay, yeah, that's okay. We kind of like it. That's all right. But um, you kind of leave the design and the presentation of the book to, um, you know, someone who's not Muslim. And, you know, you, you, they may come up with something you like or they may not. Um, and now, actually, post 9-11, um, it it becomes a little bit more, um, a little more risky because you've got the impact of Islamophobia. This is an image of uh, a woman teaching a class that's uh, from an Islamic tradition. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that. Actually, no, I did know that. Okay. Um, so again, 2001. 2002, we had a couple of conversation books. Um, one is The Place of Tolerance in Islam, which was a situation where the, the sheikh would write an article and then, they, uh, then he was writing about tolerance, which was a big issue in, back in 2002. 
um, and a lot. And then the this was the Boston Review. Where is the democracy book? Yeah, I meant to grab it. Um, I don't know if so, can you go down and grab uh, Islam and Challenge of Democracy. I was looking for the the one with the, the right cover. It might not be on the shrine, and but it? yeah, it's orange and it's Princeton University Press. It came out around the same time. But it was a, another conversation book, again, so the, the sheikh would write the first article. Um, that article would be sent out to a number of scholars who would then write their response to his article. Um, and then the sheikh would read all of those responses and then write a final response in response to all of those other articles. And so it was a very interesting way to see um, you know, scholars weigh in on this argument, on this issue of tolerance. And the same thing um, happened on the issue of democracy. So that was Islam and the challenge of democracy. So again, you know, when this is like, if, I don't know if you can see this, but it's a bunch of women wearing white hijabs. This is a, presumably a hajj, right? Um, no. Oh, okay, well, I don't know. So it's a very, you know, stereotypical kind of thing. You know, when you think of Islam, oh, yeah, of course, you think of women wearing white hijabs, and, and not just one woman, but like a sea of women in white hijabs, right? So, um, and then I think the um, Islam and Democracy book was more, um, it wasn't people, but it was more like uh, some other kind of design. So when Ramin brings it up, we'll, we'll take a look. This is another book that came out from a, a Muslim publisher, um, Shattered Illusions, where Sheikh actually has an article, but it's just another example of a Muslim press. It's, it's better than most. It's Emil Press, um, which actually isn't even around anymore, but it was you know, a, a, a pretty good, um, a, a good presentation. And then 2005, after 9-11, this is The Great Theft came out in, um, again, after, um, this is a really important book. It was published by Harper San Francisco, um, and it, it was um, really the, the difference between, you know, people were talking a lot about moderate Muslims, and but yet no one had ever defined the term, you know, well, what is a moderate Muslim? And so um, the sheikh wrote this book that really, um, the first part of it gives you sort of the history and the rise of, um, thank you, I know, see, this is that, not the one. This is the hardback, but it doesn't show you the cover. Um, we actually, I, I couldn't find the other one, so maybe I'll show you another time. Um, um, so this was, the part one of this book gives you the whole history of the rise of Wahhabism. And so you understand, like, why Islam is, uh, or at that time, was as crazy as it was with the, the you know, infiltration of Wahhabi thought. Um, and then the second part of it was um, really, in a, in a way, it was the Sheikh's school of thought, that it was the difference between um, a moderate Muslim uh, or, you know, an extremist Muslim and what we, he was defining as a moderate Muslim on all different aspects of theology and practice. And so it was a really valuable book that was um, adopted in a lot of classes. It's, um, the, the interesting history that I think I might have told about this is the first draft that was intended to be published um, for great theft was, the, was Reasoning with God. And he had written like a 400-page draft and handed it in to the people at um, Harper's. And they were like, what is this? We wanted a beach read. This is like so difficult. And then he, you know, and he thought he was dubbing it down, but it was too difficult for them. So instead, he then took that text back and that sat for 10 years. And then he wrote this book in literally a month's time. So, and this was like to him the real dumbed down version, but for, for us mere mortals, it's an incredible book and a great education. So, but this again was a really important book after 9-11 uh, after to really uh, you know, indicate what, what are we talking about when we're talking about moderate Muslims? What does that look like? So as I said, then this was 2006, and then came Reasoning with God, which was um, in 2014. So after this was turned down, uh, the original draft was turned down by Harper's San Francisco, this sort of sat for 10 years, um, the sheikh would work on it, 
times changed. Islamophobia took an incredible rise. Um, some of the stuff that he had written that he thought was dumbed down, he went back and you know worked it back to what he felt was was right. And for those of you who have read it, it's really like an intellectual autobiography. It's also really fascinating, deep um, insight into what has happened um, in you know in the world of Islam. Um, the perceptions of Sharia and all of that in, in one person's lifetime. And, and it's an incredible, um, you know, it's an incredible journey because it's, it's academic, it's personal, it's philosophical, um, it's beautiful. Um, and so highly recommend that as well. And then the most recent um, under the Sheikh's name is this book, The Rutledge Handbook of Islamic Law, which is a collection of articles. Sheikh has a really powerful article in here and an introduction, but it's an invitation to a lot of scholars to weigh in on different aspects of, of Islamic law. And so this came out, I think, in either uh, 2020 or 2021. Oh, sorry, 2019. So, so that is kind of the history of like our um, interaction with the publishing world. And there was a lot of learning for me personally. All of this made me really feel like, oh my God, it would be really amazing for us to have our own press. Because when you're talking about, you know, like Muslim presses and what they produce, you feel frustrated and you feel like, okay, I don't really want to work with a Muslim press because I, you know, we, we want to be able to speak to the world and, and you know, and be, present ourselves in a, in a respectable manner. Um, and then this also creates a challenge because then you're working mostly with secular publishers. So the Cambridges, the Oxfords, the, you know, all of these, you know, big name publishers, they're obviously not necessarily interested in something that is grounded um, in, in the tradition and unapologetically Muslim. You know, we have, we're talking about academic presses. Um, and, you know, and I have, we, you know, the, the Sheikh has written so much, he's said, you know, he's done so much that is so valuable and I always felt like, you know, it would be amazing to have the ability to just create our own mechanism for, for publishing. Um, and, you know, in that time, obviously, as you know, the, the publishing world has completely changed. So, you know, self-publishing has taken off. Um, it's a lot easier to actually, you know, create stuff. Um, and so, um, you know, over time, um, I, this was always just a dream that I had. And, you know, as I had mentioned in my, my weekly email, you know, as things progressed and we, in, you know, created the Suli Institute and then we started doing virtual khutbahs and whatnot, we just had this critical mass of amazing information that, you know, I felt shouldn't just live out there on YouTube um, or on SoundCloud, but that really needed to be published. So um, fast forward um, to 2019, um, and, you know, Suli is now alive. We're doing halakas kind of on a monthly basis. We've been doing now khutbahs virtually since January of 2019. And Mr. Joe Linhoff um, sends me this beautiful email and, you know, says, I, you know, I love your work and um, I would love to be able to help in any way that I can. And so we had several conversations and I told him about this idea of publishing, you know, khutbahs. Um, and he thought it was an amazing idea, and so he said, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna, I, I, I would love to do that. I'm a little busy, but I'm gonna try and get, you know, pass through what I need to do, and then I'm gonna focus on this. So I was like, okay, wonderful, you know, that's, that would be fabulous. So, you know, hadn't, we got really busy with everything else. We got busy with Project Illumin and all of this kind of thing, and then one day, last Ramadan, Joe shows up, and he's like, I've got a surprise for you. Here is the draft, and I was like, oh my God. So that was a year ago, this Ramadan. And then we were just um, excited to work on it. And, you know, I think we, we decided, okay, let's make it happen. Um, so, this is my learning part, page, okay. So we then, this 
decided, okay, let's make it happen. Let's create a Suli Press. And let's think about what we want the first book to come out as. And so this is the announcement, Prophet's Pulpit. Um, this is the collection of um, 22 of Sheikh's um, khutbas, which are stunning. We spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what did we want to present in the first book? Because this is the first book out the door. And if we want to prove ourselves as the Asuli Institute, as Asuli Press, it's got to be really good if it's going to go out there. It can't be, you know, like something like this. And we really wanted to create something that was beautiful, that someone would pick up and say, wow, that, you know, that's really beautiful. That looks like a professional book. And then when you open it, again, it's beautiful. And you'll recognize we took the same um, approach of having these, like, Arabic calligraphy at the start of every chapter. Um, we took a lot of time to think about, okay, what did we want to include, um, you know, and because uh, Sheikh obviously talks about a lot of different themes um, through his khutbahs, um, and so our, our themes were um, from darkness to light, on love and building a relationship with God, keeping our faith in the modern day, on justice, and on gratitude and navigating hardship. So these are sort of the bigger themes. And then within that, we've got, you know, three to five khutbahs that are really powerhouse khutbahs. So if you've obviously sat through one of the khutbahs here, you know that Sheikh calls it as he sees it. He has no problem speaking truth to power. He talks about what's happening in the world. Um, it's, you know, what I called applied Islamic ethics. It's vibrant Islam. It's like what Islam is meant to be if you are an ethical Muslim that cares about this faith um, and cares more than just about prayer and ritual, but wa wanting to make a change for good in the world. I mean, it's one thing to have all of this incredible content available on a YouTube video, um, but we all know that the vast majority of people have a hard time watching a five-minute excerpt, you know, much less sitting down and watching a one, two, three-hour session. But those of us who have sat through those sessions, we know how valuable those are. And even most of, uh, most of Sheikh's khutbahs are an hour, give or take. So the fact that now we actually have it in a book is, is you know, the fact that it's in a different form means that you have a different way of, of accessing this information. You can read it, you can gift it, you can read it again and again, you can take your time, you can study it, you know, you can look things up. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's a completely different experience. And I have to say that this book is so special. Joe did an amazing job. When you open this, you know, it's a really difficult thing um, to listen to someone speak have that transcribed, because this is our process. We send everything to professional transcribers and we end up with a raw transcript. And so you see someone speaking, but to turn that raw transcript into something that you can read and that moves you and where you still hear the voice of the person speaking, that is an art form. And that was something that Joe really like honed in on and he just knocked it out of the park. So when you open this and you read it, not only does it, it's, it's clear, it's crisp, it's beautiful, but you hear the voice of Sheikh, and I think that's what's incredibly powerful. So kudos to Joe, kudos to Joe's team, because Joe, as you know, is the head of our, um, he's the editor-in-chief of our Project Illumin transcription team. This is the crew that is getting us on the road to publishing the entire tefsir. So that's another process, you know, we, every, um, every halakha that we have, we send it to the raw 
um, you know, to the transcribers, we get the raw transcription. Joe's team takes that raw transcription, you know, works with it to clean it up and to get it a really good first pass um, so that by the time we reach our, inshallah, 114th surah, then we have, like, you know, we've got a good first draft of all the other things that came before. It would have been way too daunting if we didn't, you know, start that editing process until we were done with the halakas. Then you would have uh, like 114 chapters and it would be, it would kill you. So Joe has done an amazing job um, with a, a team of, I think, seven or eight transcribers. And again, I have to just give my, you know, absolute kudos to this transcription team. These guys are hardworking. They're dedicated. They're not even here in person. They're like located all around you know, whether it's the world, uh, around the U.S., um, they're, you know, connected to us, but they have spent countless hours, um, you know, working through a process. Joe has, you know, a, you know, very clear vision for how, um, you know, what process to follow, both in terms of, like, um, how we handle the text and how we preserve what the sheikh is saying, how do you preserve that voice. So um, the fact that they were able to get, you know, keep up the work and give Joe a little bit of time to focus on this is huge. Now this book was really intended for um, several different things. One, it's like one out the gate, so it's now proof of a suli. Okay, like what are you guys really about? What are you able to produce? Um, and it was a learning curve for us in preparation for this incredible tafsir that we want to take on. Um, and it was trying to create a process so that when we have other things that we're ready to publish, that we, we have it ready to go on a dime. So we already have volume two and volume three in the works because um, we have you know, a whole uh, inventory of amazing khutbas. Um, we are working on a few other projects that will come out over time, but it's a really exciting thing. Um, what's really, what I wanna talk about today though, I mean, it's like, you know, I wanted to give you the history and I wanted to tell you how we arrived here, but I also wanted to talk about how, to me, this is so much more than just a publication of a book because this book becomes a symbol and, you know, and proof for what we are able to accomplish as Muslims when we talk about, you know, an intellectual revolution. So um, let me go on to here. So, you know, in terms, of, there's a lot of learning that, you know, over the last 20, 23 years through this whole process um, that has really come together in finally arriving at the Prophet's pulpit. First, obviously, is that sadly Muslim presses are the worst. I mean, they just really are. There's just no two ways about it um, in terms of the quality of output, in terms of the professionalism and dealing with um, writers, the aesthetics, um, even the content. Um, and I think anyone who's picked up a, a Muslim book, unfortunately, knows that for the vast majority, with you know a few exceptions at the top of class, that as a, as you know an, as a group of people, Muslim presses are sadly the worst. Um, and in terms of even speed to market, um, you know most are not peer reviewed. They just are not up to up to snuff and not competitive with the mainstream. I mean that's really the bottom line. Um, and secondly, secular presses have the quality but they don't have necessarily the conviction, right? So you're not gonna necessarily, uh, you know, you can't publish necessarily something like Conference of the Books or the Prophet's Pulpit, you know, a bunch of like sermons. Um, it, it's gonna be hard, especially in this age of Islamophobia. And really interesting as a side note, um, I was mentioning, you know, in part of like categorizing this book, like there's a lot that goes into like telling, you know, your publisher, okay, what kind of book is this? Does it fall into religion? Does it fall into um, ethics? Does it fall into Islam? 
um, and you learn that there are these categories that you can choose from. Interesting, interestingly, there is a category for religion, sermons, and then subcategory, Christian and Jewish, but zero for, for Islamic sermons. So this is like kind of the first thing that was very interesting. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot also um, working with secular designers because, you know, first of all, you know, whether you, you have an opportunity or not to weigh in really depends on your relationship with the publisher um, and, the, you know, and even just an individual, whether they're going to allow you to weigh in. So for Reasoning with God, for example, I was the one who was able to find this imagery and then they allowed, you know, uh, us to present that imagery and then they worked with the final form. So um, you see like, you know, or in some cases you have like no input at all um, or, you know, um, like this, no input at all. So of course you've got a whole bunch of men standing there praying, kind of a very typical image. We didn't really like this image, but we really didn't have a whole lot to say about it. And even the title, The Great Theft, that was their title and not one that we necessarily really liked. But it was capturing what was happening at the moment, um, you know, in an Islamophobic world, people wondering what's happening with, you know, extremism. So, you know, it was a really interesting um, learning because um, your experiences with secular presses, while they have the ability to create quality product, it's going to be a little bit his hit or miss when it comes to like what you're trying to convey as a Muslim and as, um, you know, an unapologetic Muslim. Um, and then lastly, you know, like when you walk into the bookstore, like this is my constant pet peeve, we would, we would all often go to the bookstore like every weekend. Um, and now if you walk into a Barnes and Noble or any bookstore, go and see what is the Islam section. What does it look like? It's really, really depressing. I've taken pictures I've posted on social media. Um, the Barnes & Noble here in, in Columbus, Ohio, um, which is typical of many Barnes & Nobles we've been to, even in LA, you walk in and you've got rows and rows of Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, and the Islamic section is literally no more than that, one shelf. And consistently, it can consist of this much in terms of the Quran, you might have like three different Qurans, and then I've seen Reza Eslan's No God But God, and then the rest is Islamophobia, Hershey Ali. And it's, you, you will have some you know, combination of that. And for the second largest religion in the world that has issues about Islam and all of that, this is ridiculous. But what it conveys is one that Muslims don't buy books. They don't spend money on books, and this is not a, a source of income for people who, who publish and sell books. And so they will put out there what people will buy. Um, and so, you know, and then in terms of like quality, well, okay, if I have to choose between, you know, these, um, I'm gonna choose books that on Islam that come out from presses that look professional. And, you know, and those a lot of times are not the best books for, for guiding seekers and, you know, for representing Islam as, as it should be. Um, so what ends up happening in terms of all of these dynamics, um, poor quality books, poor quality publications, um, lack of financial investment, consequences are that Muslims don't control their narrative, as we know. Um, Muslim voices are, are not heard. Um, their issues are you know, not clear to people. Um, there's no means of educating common people, anyone who even is interested in Islam. It's very difficult for, for them to find books or to know what books are good. Um, and that Muslims ultimately wield no financial power um, in this, in this you know, backdrop. Um, there are no high quality books or very few quality books. Um, and that others, like Islamophobes, will control the narrative. 
Um, and then as far as Muslim presses, there's no respect from um, you know, fellow publishers. Um, the whole Muslim publishing space becomes very ghettoized. Um, and there are no consistent quality standards. Now, we know from our work here that the jihad of our day and age is ideas and knowledge and communication. And so that is why it is extremely important. Like this book and this publication and the Sui Press represents so much more. So to sum it up, you know, when you t try and take a look at what are the elements of success of a good book, you know, content is, of course, extremely important. The cover, how it presents, is it beautiful? Is it appealing? Is it something that you want to pick up and look at? For our purposes, conviction. You know, what does it say about our faith? Or is it apologetic or is it not apologetic? And ultimately, distribution. You know, is it going to get around? And when you look down this level, so I'm, I've got Muslim publishers, secular publishers, and Asuli. For Muslims, you know, we don't always know that the content is very good. Most times, often, it's not. It's very, a lot of it was very Wahhabi for very long. The cover is obviously not great. Conviction is there, sure. Distribution, I don't know. I mean, maybe just ghettoized and among Muslims, it might be okay. Secular, they've got the content. They've got the cover. But they don't, they don't have the conviction necessarily, and they definitely have the distribution. For Suli Press, with this, with the Prophet's Pulpit, we have definitely the content. It's amazing if you read it. It's incredible. The cover, I honestly think it's a beautiful cover. We obviously have the conviction. Um, and, you know, just to say, like, how do I define, um, you know, like a high-quality book um, in terms of Muslim terms? It's, you know, obviously it has to be aesthetically pleasing, that it's got to be rigorously sound um, and unapologetically Muslim. Because a lot of Muslim books, um, although they might be really good, they're very apologetic. Um, so, you know, the last question then is distribution. And that is really then what brings me to... Um, my now I'm gonna like be a little bit like convert zealy and so forgive me <laughs> I like go a little nuts because you know this is like we talk so much here about who controls the narrative um, you know how do we make a change like I am so sick and tired and done with being with people thinking Muslims are backwards and stupid and um, can't be on par with mainstream we absolutely can do this, and this book, to me, is proof of that. Um, I wanted to be able to compete with other academic presses. I can go forward and say, you know, what's in this book is, is empowerment. This is empowerment in a book. It's, you know, speaking truth to power. Everything that Sheikh says about, you know, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and, you know, the backwardsness of Muslim, you know, spaces here in America, it's all here. We didn't edit any of that out. Um, it's applied Islamic ethics. It's Quranic exegesis. It's what we do here. It's like what is God's book telling us to do um, and how do we do it? You know, right? So every single week, Sheikh gets up and talks about what's happening in the world and he tells us, you know, if you're an ethical Muslim, this is how, what you should feel. Yes, we live in dark times, but this is what, if you as an individual, it's up to your individual choice. This is how we make the change. If God feels that we are willing in our hearts to, you know, do the right thing and stand up to justice, then God will help. But the, until we get there, there's not, we're, we're going to be in, in darkness. Um, and I, what I love about what we do here that is, I think, different than a lot of other Muslim, you know, scholars, presses, organizations, is we focus not just on the trees. I think a lot of people get lost in the trees and they don't see the forest for the trees. 
So, you know, I, I question, like, who has a real comprehensive view? Like, I, you know, I'm on social media. I look at books and things. People are having debates about hadith. People are having debates about, you know, this tradition, that approach, that school of thought, blah, blah, blah. It's like all tree stuff. You're missing the forest. And I feel like what we provide here, what Sheikh provides to us, is truly when you talk about a way forward, a methodology, an applied way of living. And that's what people are looking for. You know, even like a Yakin Institute, I was looking at um, some of their, their stuff. And, and their approach is, you know, we come up with good questions that are interesting and important. And we ask scholars to weigh in on these questions. And then we make it easy for you to access. So you can look at infographics. You can, you know, approach it through this, that, the other thing. But it's not a methodology. It's not a way forward. It's not a comprehensive view. If you don't know up from down or right, you know, then answering one or two questions is not going to get you a way forward. But that's what this does. And that's, um, you know, and so the fact that now, if we are oppressed and we can control the quality of content, and you know, Sui content is second to none, we have a great cover, we have conviction and we are not apologetic. We are not, you know, we know our job is to testify and, you know, speak truth to power. All that's left is distribution. And what I ask, you know, so now we're available on Amazon, alhamdulillah, right about an hour or two before the salika, the hardback went live. So you can get the paperback now. The hardback is, um, you can order it. We have an ebook in process. And then we also are working um, with uh, distributors, so it'll be available hopefully um, in brick and mortar stores, so in you know Barnes and Noble and whatnot. Um, so, and I'm praying and hoping that you know that some of these bookstores will, will pick it up. But what makes a difference is now all of you. So we've done the hard work of creating this incredible product and making it available. And now what I ask all of you is to join this cause, and let's. If you're done with looking, you know, with Muslims being thought of as stupid and backwards, join me. And let me just share with you. So if you, if anyone's familiar with this book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point, um, or, you know, there's another book called Contagious, you know, these are books are sh that talk about the dynamic of how ideas take hold, how they become contagious, how they get set on fire. Things come to a tipping point, and once they, once they get past the tipping point, poof, they explode. And that's what I want for this book, because this book is now, to me, best in class. If you can find a book that's better than this, show me, I want to see it. And, but that's great, I hope so. Um, but from, my, from where we're sitting, this is the best book from that quality standard, unapologetically Muslim, beautiful, inside and out. So now, this is a symbol that you can share with your friends, your non-Muslim friends, your Muslim friends, your Muslim friends who don't understand what the heck you're doing, or why people should care about Usuli, or why Hamza Yusuf isn't you know, good enough, or why Omar Suleiman isn't good enough. Here it is. Use this as your Eid present. Give it to every single person you know, and I don't care if they read it. I just want them to see it. I just want them to know that it exists. I just want them to know that somebody is doing something that can be taken seriously. And interestingly, I mean, we talk a lot about, um, you know, where is the change going to come? And it's really interesting. Sahar Aziz, Professor Sahar Aziz, came and spoke in Dr. Abul Fadl's Muslims, Race, and Law class this week. And it became really clear to me when she was talking about her family. You know, she came from Egypt. Her parents came. Um, you know, and like so many families, they were looking for a better life. And um, But she made this comment. You know, my parents said, you know, we are not here to change the problems in America. If we wanted to change things, we would have stayed back home and fixed things there. 
because they consider themselves guests in America. And so they are not interested in issues of racism or, you know, gender issues or wealth and, you know, disparities or, or any of the social justice issues because they feel like they're guests here. So who are the people that care? They're the people that are probably second and third generation. And oftentimes we know people who reach the third generation are not really Muslim anymore. They're the ones that say, yeah, my Muslim, my parents were Muslim, but, you know, they don't have the language. Um, but, but they feel that America is their home. And they're the ones that actually can make the change. So when we talk about who are the Muslims that are smart, that care, that are social justice oriented, that are curious about the Quran, probably everyone in this room, you know, is two degrees of separation from everyone in America or in the West who falls into that category. So between us, if we can get this book in the hands of every Muslim academic, influencer, activist, anyone who cares, we can start to hopefully get to that tipping point and try and make a change. So all I ask is just buy a book for your friends, you know, and um, give it away. Just make it, you know, tell them to put it on their coffee table. It's so pretty. You could frame it. You know, I don't care. You don't have to read it. Just get it out there so that it makes an impact so people see it. Their awareness rises. Um, and then that can be the start of change. And I really believe that if, if, you know, if we want to make a difference, this is a great first step. And, you know, and inshallah, may God accept and help us. That's what makes, you know, so many things don't make it to the tipping point. They don't catch fire. And that's where I feel like if we take the effort and God sees it, then God can push it over the tipping point. And that can start to, to make things change very, very quickly. And if that is the case, Instead of having a potential to begin, we can then say the intellectual revolution has begun. Um, you know, like, on a personal note, I thought I would share this. Um, a lot of people here have heard my story about, you know, my, my family, my conversion, um, how my parents um, and I were, you know, when I was really uh, estranged from them for eight years and how difficult it was. Um, so one of the very first things that I did when, when this book came online and was available to buy, like literally just this week, like several days ago, I bought it, two copies, one for my mom and my dad. And they got it actually even before we did here, so just the way that the distribution worked. And so my, I called my mom, and I'm like, okay, I'm sending you a gift today. Did you get it? She's like, oh, yeah, we got it. We got it like a couple hours ago. We've been reading it. I'm like, oh, you didn't call me. <laughs> so, but I'm like, okay, what do you think? And she said, you know, your father said to me, um, I can't believe we have a daughter that could do this. You know, we've done nothing. Maybe our only purpose was to have a daughter that could actually do this. And then he wrote me a text message a couple nights ago, and he said, I think what you and Khaled have done is absolutely amazing. Um, I don't think anyone else could have done it. Um, and he's like, how many more volumes are coming out? When are the next ones coming out? <laughs> if you know anything about my story, like, you know, years ago when I converted, I literally thought I would never, I was like, I was done. Like, my parents, you know, disowned me. I, you know, was ready to just see them on the final day, you know. And then this is like a Ramadan miracle. This is a Ramadan miracle. So we press is a Ramadan miracle. And then to get a message like that from my parents, um, is truly a miracle and so anything you know can change very quickly and I think that if we put in the work we the change can come from here
because I just don't see that the, the content that's out there um, doesn't compare to the stuff we do here. You know, other Muslims are not interested in figuring out what the Quran has to say. And you know, this is just dovetails with all the work we're doing with the Holocaust. How can you be Muslim if you don't know what your, your book says? And, and how can you know what your book says unless you've had someone like a scholar who's dedicated his life opening the meaning and then we're here just to receive it. You know, it's, it's such a miracle. So um, thank you for giving me all of this time um, to take you through some history and my, my musings and kind of go off on my convert zeal. I really appreciate it. Um, but I, again, please join this cause. Let's make a difference. Let's get to that tipping point. Let's get this book to everyone we can, you know, get, get it to. Um, if you know people who can write reviews, if you know people who want to endorse it, um, you know, anyone. Like, there are just a million ways. Let's get it into the hands of politicians, um, interfaith groups, um, you know, Muslim artists. I'm going to reach out to Rami, and I'm going to say, Rami, get this to all of your friends. You know, everybody who wants to care about Islam, who wants to be Muslim, wants to find um, comfort and faith and direction and, and justice and, and, and something much better than this, this darkness in this world. This is the way, so let's, let's do it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa subhanallah al-Aliyah al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alih wa ashabih wa ala man attaba'u bi ihsan ila yawmiddin. Allahumma shahri sadri wa yasirli amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya Rabb. So I just to to continue the, the flow, um, of course, every time you stop, there is a certain flow that is interrupted. The, we talked about the um, unmistakable tendency to take Surah Al-Mujadala as people have often done with the Quran in, in general, broadly speaking, um, as engaging, as a surah sort of engaging in things that are distinct, separate, and apart. That there is, you know, the issue of uh, the jidal, uh, a woman with a problem encountering going to the Prophet um, complaining to God, God then revealing a response, then there is a, a, a sort of a distinct, separate and apart problem of um, the what the descri Quran describes as the Najwa engaged in um, by the hypocrites of Medina, or, or I mean, the, the, the term hypocrites, un, unfortunately, is very broad, and it, it, what you discover is that it, it incorporates and it includes, unless unpacked and interrogated and um, sifted through, that it includes a very broad array 
of um, individuals, either individuals who were systematic dissenters, meaning that the individuals who were not really Muslim, individuals who were in fact thought of themselves as in fact Muslim, but they were weak in faith, individuals who were not necessarily devious and not necessarily weak in faith, but weak in character, um, who engaged in behavior that is um, problematic at, at, and, and unethical because of the weakness of their character. Anyway, that, so the tendency is uh, to, to then see this as, okay, well, there's the, this issue of Jidal, this issue or the, the issue of the woman, and then the, the issue of the, uh, the, the, those individuals who um, um, are talking, um, gossiping about the prophet and his followers, and that they are engaging in this gossip with the Jews of Medina, uh, so they're go they're they're gossiping with the um, um, and that this gossip is causing a great deal of anxiety and turmoil in society. And then to say, well, and then there is a sort of separate and apart problem of. Uh, sort of the as as often described in so many um, sources, the social ethics of um, of a majalis or or the social ethics of how to conduct yourself um, when you sit in public gatherings, and to to then say, well, okay, it's saying that. You know, and, and in fact, different people have taken a d different ways. So some have, you know, said what it's saying is is that ma just make space for people to sit. Um, some in the Islamic tradition have interestingly taken it in a direction that I I find very problematic, and that is um, when you when you organize your, your social gatherings, be cognizant of the status of people and who belongs where. Um, so one of the things I, uh, I remember a long time ago, this was, I think, in the days of Sadat in Egypt, Anwar Sadat. There was a guy who um, asked... Um, um, one of our, one of our teachers uh, about the fact that, and you find this all over the Arab world, um, probably all over the Muslim world, I guess. But um, is that you know whenever you 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 go to any events, you always find the first rows are reserved for dignitaries, um, and. There is a whole, there is a whole social, I don't know, 
a sense of prestige and envy and, you know, a whole social dynamic that goes with, oh, you know, who gets to sit in the front rows and who can never sit in the front rows. Uh, interestingly, when I visited at Yale Law School, I was this was the only place in the U.S. Um, where I I actually found that they followed this archaic and medieval sort of system that you you normally encounter in third world countries. Um, that the sort of there is a faculty the faculty that are considered the most prestigious in the law school that sit in the front. And it doesn't matter how late they come, their seats are always reserved. It's so it's some, and oh, oh, so the, the, when that fellow was asking about why in, in the days of Anwar Sadat, I mean, it's, of course, it, he just happened to be, I'd be asking when Anwar Sadat was president, but it is the case till now. Um, whether it's Islamic to, that, you know, the 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 the, the elite uh, always have their seats reserved at the very front, and uh, never forgot. Never forget the, the Sheikh cited this verse uh, to to say, well, you know, and what he meant by citing this verse is he was claiming what you find in the sources that the occasion for revelation was that some of the Badriyun, some of the early Muslims who had took part in the Battle of Badr, arrived late in the, in, in, to the meeting and found that people had not reserved seats for them. And that, that bothered the Prophet And the claim is that then this verse is revealed to say you guys should have basically made space for the nobility, the, 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 the noble in status. I mention this because don't get the misimpression that the interpretation that, that you hear from me um, is the interpretation that you will necessarily encounter in all the books. And don't be surprised if you're somewhere and someone says, no, no, the, the, this, this, ayah, this ayah was revealed to say that, you know, give, you should know the, 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 the status of people and, you know, make space according to their status. I, I believe this is completely misguided, and I believe this is completely wrong, and I believe that this arises from the highly segmented and fabricated way that we read Sur, and without, we, we don't understand the morality and the ethical message of the Surah. And in the, in the fragmented and, and segregated way of, of reading things, then you would go on and say, okay, so after it talks about sort of the ethics of social gatherings, uh, you know, making space either for latecomers or making space for dignitaries or whatever, uh, then, they, then Surah Al-Mujadala moves on to talk about those who are hostile to Allah and his prophet, 
Man Yuhadidillah, those who are sworn enemies and and so on. Now, of course, by doing that, which is normally the approach, not just to Surah Al-Mujadala, as I keep underscoring, but it, it, I, there, there is something... Surat al-Mujadala itself, as is the thrust of so much of the Qur'an, um, underscores honesty and transparency in discourse. And I've noticed something. It's, it's, you find this among Muslims, but I'll tell you, it's not just Muslims. It is in all... Uh, I like the term defeated cultures or all defeated societies, but you, you could replace, instead of defeated, you could say in all um, societies where illiteracy is high or societies where uh, the, the level of education is, um, is seriously wanting, let's put it that way, or societies that are underdeveloped. Um, and that is, it is part of the, the, the lack of seriousness with the intellectual process. And that is um, lack, of, lack, of tra lack of honesty in even diagnosing the problems in discursive or discursive processes. And, and what I mean more, more specifically is that you have this tendency, like, you know, something will be in the tradition and you encounter it, we all encounter it in the tradition and we've encountered it for decades and decades and decades and we all know that the people could have grown up with exactly what I'm describing. Uh, that you know the tendency to 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 take a surah as basically a, an amalgamation of rulings and so on, and then you come along and you say something like, um, "Well, each surah has a coherence and a cohesiveness and so, and so on," and then because of the lack of seriousness in confronting our problems, there is a tendency that you find that is immediate in for people that hear you to pretend like, well, yeah, sure. It, well, what you're saying is that has always been known. It's, it's been the, like that. And the problem is when you pretend that something is not, or that something, or you pretend that something is that it is not, you marginalize and trivialize the intellectual point. You trivialize it because by pretending something is that is not, 
you guarantee that it will only survive for a very short period of time. For as long as when the next person comes along that goes back to the original sources who might have not actually heard it from you, but heard it from someone who heard it from you, and say, this view is clearly discredited because the, the original sources clearly don't uphold this view. Honesty in discourse is to say, no, we, we know what the original source is from the very beginning, and to say what, what, what is actually a, a, when something is, um, when something is separating or something is, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, Breaking, not breaking away, but the, it, it launching from a breakaway point. Because it is a continuation of a tradition to an extent, but it is also a departure from the tradition. Um, so I'm emphasizing this because in Surat al-Mujadala, one of the surah in the Quran where you see this very distinct that I've never read now again they always learn in scholarship and in, in knowledge that just because you haven't encountered it it doesn't mean it doesn't exist it could exist but I just haven't encountered it but in my readings I have never encountered someone or encountered anyone that has even given the idea that Surah Al-Mujadala has a, a cohesive flow to it, who has taken that seriously. But I submit to you that, in fact, if you don't understand the cohesive flow, if you don't understand that this is not about separate, desperate occasions for revelations, and about different things in different points at different moments in time that, in fact, you will not understand what Surah Al-Mujadala is about at all. So Surah Al-Mujadala, I think it, it underscores the importance of Allah, the Quran is not a digest, and Allah is not a digest writer. It's not Allah is not compiling a bunch of events under a general heading. And if you take Many of the riwayat, so for instance, in Surah Al-Mujadala, when you read Ibn Mas'ud, who says the first ten ayahs are Meccan, and the rest of the surah is Medinan, or uh, uh, another tradition that will, will, another report that will tell you, oh yeah, you know, Surah Al-Mujadala was, you know, all Surah Al-Mujadala was revealed 
uh, in the 5th century Hijra, except for this one ayah that was revealed in the 10th century Hijra. A lot of these reports that when, when you go back and you study these narratives that sort of gra do tanasub, they, 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 they think that this verse seems to fit that this occasion, and they initially the, the, these reports appear as opinions by tabi'in, and then eventually they are reported as hadith attributed to the Prophet it's a highly problematic picture because then what then what the, the impression you get um, is is as if Allah uh, has written a digest it's uh, you know each surah have events but they're not even chronologically organized it's not even that the events uh, you know, the, the reason, the unity, is that the events occurred around the same time or consecutively. But, that you, but then you, 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 you sit there and you say, well, so why is a surah a surah, right? Why this event is placed under, and, and this is precisely what, you know, what people like... Um, Gib and Watt and many of the of the Orientalists of the Quran uh, had a field day with um, is to say, well, you know, look, the, the the Quran doesn't even have subject unity, doesn't have chronological unity. The, the Quran is an amalgamation of just collection of reports, and it it opens up. You know, it's it's a, an endless array of. While if you in, I would argue that if you actually invest a modest amount of effort, you will discover that there is a cohesive and a comprehensive unity, thematic unity to all the sur, and I'm, I'm underscoring this with Surah Al-Mujadala because Surah Al-Mujadala is perhaps one of the sur that is, you find the, the it's sort of on, on a spectrum, it is the extreme where you find commentators uh, finding no semblance of unity. Um, okay. But, as we were saying last time, last halakha, that what realities, what truth, while in Surah Al-Qasas, Allah alerted us to the importance of qasas in our lives. Qasas creates realities. P 
people tell themselves all types of qasas all the time and tell others qasas all the time. And it is the qasas that often gives us what what we look at as his our history and our past, our narrative. Surat al-Mujadala, but comes back to this issue, but from a different angle. Because now it is not the mega narratives, but it is the specific acts of speech that you engage in and how speech can um, injure society or how speech can render society or create illnesses within society or speech can have a very different purpose. It is not a speech that focuses on um, the satisfaction of personal idiosyncrasies. So much of the speech that we could engage in Unlike this, the, 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 the woman who challenges the vain speech of Zihar by taking her speech to the Prophet and then ultimately lifting her speech to Allah. And because revelation ends, Allah provided a solution to this woman. But when revelation ends and Allah is no longer directly intervening, what, as we will see, if we in fact fail to replicate this process of having with, with, with the the act of appeal to the divine be a meaningful act in the tangible manifestations of life among people. In other words, if we render the, the representation of divinity on this earth, that when people appeal to God, and they find that the way that the divine manifests in their life through human agency, through, to be more specific, through the agency of law, is either non-responsive or unjust or unreal. It is as if the woman of Zihar appealed to God and God allowed the Zihar to stand without a solution. 
This is a, 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 a very serious responsibility and a very serious charge. But it, it requires that you... We all know that the har is a lie. And we all know that the har is not just a lie, but it is unjust and unfair. And not just unjust and unfair, but it is degrading and, and insulting to the woman. Allah solved this woman's problem But what happens when revelation ends and other people are situated like this woman in situations where they suffer injustice or they suffer indignity and they raise their hands to Allah and complain about the injustice and complain about the indignity and those who are supposed to be khulafa' fil ard provide no solutions. That's a very, very serious problem. And it would reorient your whole attitude towards the law. Because it is not about just following nusus. essence of the nas i mean you are following the nas but you are but it is not following the the simple superficial zahir and nas you are delving into the very objective of the nas and you are satisfying the the moral education and the moral trajectory and the moral norms of the Nas. So, because this is a critical point, underscore it a different way. The fact that you come and say, well, you know, if I have a case of Zahar, I will listen to what the Quran says. You haven't discharged anything. There is no more zihar in our day and age, but that's neither here nor there. The, it is the dynamics, it is the discursive process that is important. That you pay attention to the fact that zihar is a lie, zihar is an indignity, zihar is a humiliation, zihar is an injustice. A woman suffered all of that. She went to the Prophet ﷺ. The, 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 the Prophet said, I don't know. Allah resolved the solution by giving us Surah Al-Mujadala in its entirety. Not solve the solution by saying, don't do the har anymore. Solve the solution by giving us Surah Al-Mujadala. And that is the lesson that you get. That is the, the, the lesson in legal hermeneutics and legal philosophy that you learn. Leave alone ethical philosophy as well. And that we go from there to the point while 
the, the contrary to modern Arabic, modern Arabic usage, that the jidal is actually good. But a najwa and the najwa that is mina shaitan, that is from shaitan, is, is a serious problem. Now, what is, how do we know najwa that is from shaitan? Well, Allah tells us, najwa from shaitan, it is any speech, unlike speech that diagnoses a problem and tries to solve a problem. If the speech that you engage in is for idwan, ithm and idwan, you are gossiping, you are slandering people, you are buybacking people, that's the ism. And idwan is to spread enmity and anger. You are, it's, it's not that you want to solve anything. It's not that you want to address an injustice because a lot of Muslims, even till today, even in our day and age, because of how poor the, our educational processes are, they're very confused. They come before an injustice and they, and they think, well, Lord Azim, I've seen this even with youth all the time. You will find them gossiping about their friends and you know, engaging in, in ghaiba, clear ghaiba. And then when they suffer an injustice, they think that their Islamic obligation is to not to speak about it. Because speaking about it would be haram. They've got it completely flipped on its head. It's, it's twisted. What Surah Al-Mujadala is telling us, is telling us what, what, what we should know intuitively. That when it is about addressing an injustice in order to find a solution, not and you're not even speaking about injustice for Edwan to just create enmity and hostility and to spread hate. That is Najwa Minas Shaitan. That is demonic Najwa. And and that is what it is not that you are a munafiq, and because you are a munafiq, you engage in the najwa min shaitan But the fact that you engage in najwa min shaitan turns you into a munafiq. And this is, again, important, because the way we teach Surah Al-Mujadala, among others, is that you find people who think, well, you know, since I am a good Muslim, whatever najwa I engage in is necessarily good. Again, you flipped it on its head. We know whether you're good or not by the consequences of your actions or your actions, not by your status. It's not that your status that defines the moral quality of your actions. It is rather the moral quality of your action that defines your status. So regardless of 
who you claim you are, regardless of how much you pray, how much you fast, how much you read Quran, if you engage in Najwa of an Iswal Adwan, there are people that can't help. That's that's how they they find themselves is to always create drama. That, that's what they live for. They they if they can't if they don't have drama they they're bored. They 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 don't find themselves, and that makes you into a munafiq. You are a munafiq. It's not it, it, speech is no small thing. Allah created existence so through speech. Speech is what creates in our created world. Speech forms our physical, engages and interacts with our physical universe and has a direct bearing on whether we live in the godly or we live in the demonic. This is precisely why how you speak to your parents, how do you speak to your spouse, how do you speak to your children is very important because you are either weaving the demonic or weaving the divine in the way you speak. If you say, well, you know, yeah, I have a divine marriage. And, or, yeah, I welcome God in my marriage. But when you get upset, you see red. And you say things that have nothing to do with being divine. Regardless of how much you, regardless of what qasas you tell yourself, the truth of the matter is foul talk makes the divine leave and the demonic settle. And it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter, you are opening pathways and spaces for the demonic. This is why it is very important to fully understand and appreciate what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us when Allah says إِذَا قِيلَ لَكُمْ تَفَسَّحُوا فِي الْمَجَالِسِ فَافْسَحُوا يَفْسَحُ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَكُمْ انشدوا. Now notice here, and this is where we left off, that, and, and I talked about al-ifsah and al-nushuz in last halaqa, but this thing that did, when it comes, you know, we talk about what's missing in the tradition and we talk about what actually exists in the tradition. And what this part, in the tradition, like the quote from Razi that I read last time, what does exist is that many commentators notice that this is not just about making space in, so that's one. And I've read the, the quote from Razi um, last time. But 
this um, continuation of Allah says that do, do, Allah's normative command about al-ifsah wa nushuz al-ifsah wa nushuz when Allah continues on to say to say yarfa yarfa Allah alladhina amanu minkum walladhina utu al-ilm darajat so okay so first let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it maybe this So um, when you are uh, you obtain uh, when you are told make room for one another in your collective life, this is Muhammad Asad's translation. Uh, make room, and God and 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 in return, God God will make room for you in God's grace. And whenever you are told rise up, now I like the way Muhammad Asad translated this. That he took nushuz as. Rise up for a good deed. Do rise up. And God exalted. Uh, sorry. Do rise up. Period. Okay. And then Muhammad Asad continues. And God will exalt by many degrees those of you who have attained to faith. And above all such as have been vouchsafed, vouchsafed true knowledge. So, one is an ifsah, what Muhammad Asad translates as make room in your life, and in the shoes, what Muhammad Asad translates as rise up to perform good deeds. Now, It is a symbiotic relationship that in order, if you want to be elevated by degrees, if you want your knowledge to matter, if you want your piety and knowledge to actually produce concrete results, in elevation, in irtiqa. I gave a long time ago a lecture at the Islamic Center of Southern California about irtiqa in the Islamic tradition. I hope it's it's available uh, because you don't normally hear people talk about irtiqa in the Islamic tradition, but it's very important. But you need to understand these core values. And you need to understand how these core values are related precisely to the mujadala at the very beginning and to al-najwa, al-najwa min al-shaytan wa al-najwa min Allah, the demonic najwa and the divine najwa. So, and I want to, I know that I touched upon this last halakha, but I want to underscore this material because of how critical and critically important it is. 
zu Phyllis. Tafassahu fil majalis. Make room. Now, of course, Muhammad Asa translates it and make room in your life. And, of course, you know, if someone wanted to, uh, uh, if someone wanted to, to pick, um, you know, to, to be picky with him, if someone wanted, wanted to challenge him, someone would say, wait a minute, what, what does, how could you say life when it says majalis? Majalis is a majlis, right? And, and so the, the, the myopic people would say, well, it's, it clearly says, makes peace in a majlis. And a majlis is a sitting something where you sit, not a life. But I suspect, because I know that Muhammad Asad um, did his homework, even when he didn't always explain what he was saying, but I suspect that although I'm let me make sure before saying it. I'm I'm pretty sure that I've never read him explain. He does explain it. Huh? He does explain it. I think footnote eighteen. Uh. Ah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, although it is frequently assumed that this refers to the assemblies held by the Prophet when his followers would throng, uh, yeah. Uh, so he says, um, the better to hear what he had to say, or more generally to congregation and mosques. I am with Radi of the opinion that the plural noun majalis is used here in a tropical or metaphorical sense, denoting the totality of man's social life. Okay, yeah, he does. Taken in this sense, the making room for one another implies a mutual providing of opportunities for a decent life to all, and especially to the needy or handicapped and members of the community. Yeah. The, the, the under, what I would underscore here is the idea of social life, because a majlis is not, is not just where you sit, but it is what, ironically, what the, the, the uh, fellow who, who co-opted a lot of the Islamic traditions, uh, the like Rousseau in his idea of social contract, the idea of the assembly, and majalis is a, is a, is a, is where people are assembled, and where people are assembled, it is this is the the context where you have the social interaction and the critical importance of whether people feel included, whether the dynamics are inclusive or the dynamics are exclusionary. Very much like the, issue, the, the woman who had the mujadala, she had a problem. If the prophet would have told her, I don't have a solution for you, go away. What is the place 
of this woman in the assemblies of life and in the social dynamics of life, the, the, what becomes the idea of the social contract eventually and so on and so forth, it is one of exclusion and non-incorporation because you don't feel dignified. You have a problem. Society didn't respond to your problem. So society made no effort to include you. But if in order for there to be a dynamic of inclusiveness, what the Quran refers to as a tafassuh, your whole attitude must be that in our assemblies, we can't have or it is immoral to have the type of discourses that spread ism and idwan, and that is the, the problem with the Najwa Shaitaniya, and that while we can't shut people up, because ultimately the, the Prophet at no point said, well, the solution is, is to take these people and throw them in jail, or the solution is, is that to exile these people of Medina. That, that's not the point. The point is with the morality that you are charged with. But at the level of your formal assemblies, and this is where politics and law and public institutions come together, you are absolutely under immoral norm of inclusivity, rather exclusion. And in order to have inclusivity means you have to be responsive to people and their problems. The second thing is in the shoes. And in shoes, I agree with Muhammad Asad, it is rise up to good deeds, but in the shoes is is not just uh, it is in the shoes is is qila lakum means it's like saying get moving it is precisely like saying don't be lethargic when it comes to telling you what is needed for moral inclusiveness, for inclusivity, for be, being socially responsive to people's problem. The opposite of a nishuz is to say, it's not my problem. It's to say, as long as I, as long as I take care of me and my family, and we do our prayers well and our psalm well, and we keep our doors closed and our windows closed and have nothing to do with anyone, we're fine. That's exactly the opposite of a nushuz. A nushuz is dynamism. A nushuz is to say, if someone has a problem in society, this is my problem. So, now, note here, Allah comes and says, if this is your attitude, if you are a socially responsive people, 
immorally responsive people, then your iman and your ilm will elevate you many degrees. But if you're not, you could have iman, you could even have ilm, and not be elevated at all. This is the, the response, Surah Al-Mujadala, remember, this is in Medina. The, the Prophet ﷺ and his, and his albit and his companions have a, a world of headaches. External enemies, internal dissenters, people who are wishy-washy, people who are hypocrites, people who are traitors, what the Quran is teaching is in order to have any chance of meeting your challenges, you've got to rise up. Why? This is, a, this is in, in response to all those people who turn Islam today into a, a you know, the, the same thing I was talking about on the khutbah yesterday. The, the, those who t- tell you, you know, I, I am above politics. And what they're really saying is, I am above justice. Or I am beyond politics. I'm beyond justice. Which effectively is saying, I'm beyond the sunnah of the Prophet. I'm beyond the Prophet. I'm beyond. Islam to me is all about uh, a. a, a, a um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, an ego trip. It's about you know putting on, acting, putting on the right pretenses, acting, putting on the right tonality when I speak. Uh, you know, putting in a show of religiosity. But the, the Islam that took the world by storm, the Islam that changed the way the poor, the, the dispossessed, the, the displaced lived their lives. The Islam that built a civilization, they have nothing to do with that. So, and the thing that blows your mind is when these people pretend to be following the sunnah. What sunnah? I mean, it, it is, you know, like you say, you know, I, I want to, I want to honor my father. Okay, so... And then instead of walking in the footsteps of your father by, you know, uh, being the charitable man that he was or being the educated man that he was or being the kind man or the generous man, I see you sitting there, you know, uh, putting on red socks. And I say, why are you putting on red socks? I say, well, I'm honoring my father. But your whole character has nothing to do with your father. The only way you're honoring your father is putting on red socks because once you saw your father put on red socks. That's these people's concept of the sunnah. It is the most khusur. It is the most superficial. What was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ? The sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ was to change the world and change the world for the better, not for the worse, not for more oppression, not for more injustice, not for more unhappiness, not for more... 
any of the ethical norms that we recognize. It is to increase morality, not decrease morality. You will find in, in, in some sources, or you'll find in a number of sources, or a lot of sources, that they will tell you that um, they, they take it the, the opposite way. They say that if you have Iman and if you have Elm, then you will engage in Ifsah al Majalis and in Nushuz. I don't think it works grammatically. Uh, re, if, you, if you know Arabic, revisit it, reread it, and see for yourself. It doesn't work grammatically. Um, and, and, and as a consequence, when you do read the, 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 these um, commentaries that say that, they, do, they become very convoluted because they know that, and, and they often do the, the thing of, Jumping from giving you the verse, giving you the argument that doesn't work with the grammar of the verse, and then moving from there to citing a hadith about fadlul ilm and fadlul ulama, and then from the, this drawing the conclusion that it must be that because of fadlul ulama the fadl that the ulama have, that it must be that the ulama would be able to do a tafassuh wa nushuz. There are many illogical steps in this. If you studied logic and you try to map up the logic of this argument, you'll see that it doesn't work. Okay. What do I miss it? Okay. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا نَاجَيْتُمُ الرَّسُولِ فَقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيْنَ جُوَاكُمْ صَدَقَةً ذَلِكَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ وَأَطْهَرٌ فَإِنْ لَمْ تَجِدُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ أَشْفَقْتُمْ أَنْ تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيْنَ جُوَاكُمْ صَدَقَاتٍ فَإِذَا لَمْ تَفْعَلُوا وَطَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ فَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَأْتُوا الزَّكَاةَ وَأَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ this is now 12 and 13. So Muhammad Asad translates it as believers, whenever you intend to consult the Prophet, offer up something in charity on occasion of your consultation. This will be for your own good and more conducive to you your inner purity. If you are unable to do so, know that God, know that verily God is much forgiving, a dispenser of gaze. Um, do you perchance fear lest you may be sinning if you cannot offer up anything in charity on occasion of your consultation with the apostle? But if you fail to do it, for lack of opportunity, and God turns unto you in God's mercy, 
remain but constant in prayer and render no more than the purifying dues. And thus pay heed unto God and God's apostle, for God is fully aware of all that you do. Okay, so the the traditions that you normally get or that you often read um, with this part of Surah Al-Mujadara Uh, is the argument that of of an abrogated rule, and what you read in many sources is that people used to crowd around the Prophet constantly asking him questions, and that that used to exhaust him. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then tells believers, okay, from now on, if you want to ask the, the Prophet a question, you have to pay a sadaqah. And of course, those of you who cannot do it because they can't afford to, Allah forgives them, and also at the same time telling them, you know, if you fail to do it because of the lack of opportunity, um, or you, you just, the circumstances doesn't permit it, then, then make your prayer and your worship a replacement for that. That okay, you didn't give, you didn't get a chance to pay a sadaqah when you when you asked the prophet about this issue, but then do worship, prayer, uh, salah, and song and so on instead. And then you get uh, reports. There, there's a whole just uh, um, canvas of them that. Uh, some say, I don't, did I write it down? Um, yeah, some say that this was a ruling that was the law for effect for one night, and then it was abrogated. Uh, others say that it was the law for one hour, and then it was abrogated. Some say that it was ten nights for. Um, uh, Ten nights, and then it was abrogated. That if you if you ask the prophet, then pay. You know, not pay the prophet, but pay a sadaqah. And there is even it entered into sectarian issues where there is a very famous tradition um, attributed to Imam Ali that Imam Ali says there is one law in the Quran which was followed by no one, no Muslim except for me. And that's um, this verse. That when it was decreed that Imam Ali radiallahu an uh, would never ask the Prophet without paying a sadaqah, but no one else did. Uh, no one else followed that law. 
that it was a consistently violated law. Um, it's a long story, I mean, and a long journey, but This narrative about Imam Ali and this uh, ayah is a good example where you find in terms of chain of transmission, and I'm even talking about Sunni chains of transmissions, not Shi'i chains of transmission. But Sunni chains of transmission, it, it, it's, uh, it looks solid. But when you analyze the hadith historically it looks highly sectarian that it was employed it 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 it, it was employed in sectarian um uh um and it's even the old even though it it was even though it it's in sunni sources as well as shia sources but that uh, the Nawasib did everything they can to try to suppress this tradition. Uh, the um, anti-Nawasib did everything, everything they can. They tried to protect this tradition. Um, the, we read vague references that this that someone says from the muhaddithun that I, that a version of this tradition used to exist was a different isnad but that but this isnad has been suppressed and we have no evidence or no uh, author of what that isnad was anyway so i don't confuse confuse you and and risk losing you I have very serious reservations and qualms about this entire, uh, oh, this was decreed for one hour and then abrogated. This was decreed for 10 days and was abrogated. This was decreed for one night, was abrogated, and so on. And, and I think what it, it, the, the, what, what it, Nothing was abrogated, but what it is saying is entirely consistent with the message of al-Mujadala and entirely consistent with the morality of Surah al-Mujadala, and that is there are Many of you that compete to speak to the Prophet and that, to put it in our terms today, talk is cheap. Talk is very cheap. People go to the Prophet ﷺ not just with questions. Rasul. It doesn't say Rasul or Rasul. Rasul. That many of you, many of you, are more than happy 
to you, I want to engage you. It's like you see people today, you know, every, uh, what is that expression, uh, Joe, Matt, and Harry, or? Tom, Dick, and Harry. Tom, Dick, and Harry. So there's no Joe? Oh, and no Matt? Okay. Tom, uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry. No Joe, no Matt. So, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, the attitude towards, towards talk is when you take talk for granted and you take the, 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 your attitude towards ilm itself, and that is why one of the most fascinating things is that the whole enterprise of ilm, when, when um, and this is something, unfortunately, that has been lost in our Islamic tradition, that to show reverence for ilm, you had to spend money on ilm. The idea that you're entitled to ilm for nothing, that ilm comes free, is a, a very post-colonial slash Wahhabi idea. It is a hodgepodge of the cheapening of Islamic knowledge. And note, by the way, mind you, you, you want to, a lot of times, you know, instead of giving you a lecture that for three hours long about Muslim Islamic history since the 17th century onwards, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a very simple example that will make it click. Take any of the colonized people that you know, Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, whatever, Iran. The idea that you have to, to spend money to learn medicine hardly needs proof. In fact, it is somewhat insulting to say, try to get medical knowledge or the time of a doctor for free. The same attitude doesn't at all exist when it comes to what we, quote-unquote, qualify as Islamic knowledge, philosophical knowledge, uh, social knowledge. Compare that if you want to just even get a clue, read The Rise of Colleges by George Maknesi, a book in English, uh, Rise of Colleges in Islam. And see the extent to which the Islamic civilization understood that unless you put your money where your mouth is, talk is cheap. And what the Quran is simply saying is, you know, all of you guys, there are a lot of you that come and talk, 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 talk. But the proof that any of this talk actually means anything is your sadaqat. Not, this is not going in the Prophet's pocket, obviously. But it is 
if you are sitting there and picking his brain, as so many, uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry like to do, you know, the number of people that come, that send you uh, emails, you know, in our day and age, say, I, I would love to pick your brain. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll allow you to pick my brain, but pay for it. They'll disappear in a second. It is unbecoming, not, it's, it's unbecoming towards you. It is an insult at you to even aspire for ilm without it having to cost you. If you want ilm, as, as a matter of cleansing your own soul, make it cost you. It because it is a form of riyadh nafsiya. It is a form of disciplining the soul. Allah is teaching us. Look, you can have a woman that comes with a complaint, and you could send this woman away without a solution. And the the result is you have no inclusivity and you have complete apathy in your society. And because of that, your iman and ilm doesn't elevate you. You're dead in the water. Alternatively, you have a very different attitude towards creating problems. Now, at the same time, look at... There is speech that is focused on a... On on diagnosing a problem, finding a solution to a problem. And there is a speech that does nothing. It, it, it um, camouflages, or it pretends to be, or it, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, it's a word like camouflages, but when you, you pretend to be something that you're not. Um, mimics? Mimics? Uh, mimics. It, it mimics like diagnostic speech, but it's not. It's all about spreading enmity and, and, and stroking the ego, entertaining your own ego or addressing your own insecurities or your own sense of inferiority. You know, you feel insecure, so you like to talk about people and talk about all the, the faults, the people's faults, because you are an insecure person. That's stroking the ego. Now, the amazing thing is that when you learn to put value on speech, that, well, you know, I, I don't have time for cheap talk. I have only time for talk that does good or offers something or elevates or... And my attitude towards ilm is a serious attitude. I put my money where my mouth is because we all know that our real shaitan that causes the greatest shirk is our money. The real shaitan that is the, causes the greatest shirk is money. So Allah comes in and cuts, you know, just through all the thicket and says, okay, you want, you know, fight the shayateen of Najwa by sadaqat.
cleanse the shayateen. Allah warned us about the najwa min shaytan and will find fight the demons of najwa how through your sadaqat no abrogation none of this nonsense about oh it was an hour it's not and and in fact when you look at the the, the narratives i can point to i've found several narratives where a, the the uh, companions of the Prophet ﷺ would tell him that you know this person is 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 a just a talker because he he he's miserly and he never get, never pays sadaqa never helps anyone in society. So in other words, they're telling the the the, the Prophet ﷺ, don't waste time with him. Surah Al-Mujadal, as we'll see in a second, itself refers to this when the hypocrites call the Prophet والسلام, an udhun. An udhun means he gives his ear to everyone. He, everyone can talk into his ear. And this is a way of trying to, to, to deprecate him, is that he's a lightweight. You know, anyone can influence him, and anyone can... And of course, they're completely off. Of course, it's insulting. And and but the the point is, is that it is not the case. Or the point is, is that it is who you who you choose. Who you know is worth giving time to is itself a test of your own character. What time is it? Is it time? Okay. We'll break fast and pray Maghrib, inshallah. Ten minutes. Um, don't go away. Uh, we'll be back. We'll just break fast and, and pray Maghrib and come back, inshallah. Next movement in Surah Al-Mujadala, Allah alerts us to those who takhadu aymanahum jannah, which really, subhanAllah, it, it really, uh, the, the Qur'an Tadabbur Quran, studying the Quran carefully, gives you a very um, layered picture of the challenges that the Prophet ﷺ and his Ummah confronted. A, a picture that is is quite different from um, the. The, the 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 popularized historical narratives. So it is clear that at the that the society confronted 
it's challenged by segments in society that chose to go with the trend. They they knew that um, Yathrib has had become Medina. They they knew that the majority has decided to stand by the Muhajirun from Mecca. The majority has standed to, uh, decided to stand with the Prophet and they, as we've discussed already from Surat al-Nisa, they were keenly aware of the transformations that the, this this creed was not um, uh, like the religion, the forms of religiosity that had become anchored in society at the time. The, the religiosity that had become anchored in society, including Christian and Jewish and other forms of religiosity. Um, SubhanAllah, in many ways, resemble the forms of religiosity that exists in the modern age. It, it is a, an, a non-intrusive religion in the sense that the religion affirmed social stratifications and the social stratifications drew strength from the religion. The religion of people fought, revolved around uh, the promotion of the egotistical endeavors of the individual. What you performed rituals in order to improve your chances of better trade or better objective in lively endeavors. Even in, in Judaism, the idea of the afterlife by the time of the Prophet ﷺ had weakened quite a bit. And in some Jewish sects had even completely disappeared. That the, the idea of Hayat al-Dunya being the only thing, and um, without heaven or hell, and in in um, in Christianity, it, it, all of religion had become uh, summed up and monopolized within the institution of the church and acts of salvational uh, creed that you accept Jesus Christ, you do what the church told you, and that's it. But the church itself, um, it had there, there was no social transformations, there was no program of social justice or any form of, and it, it is not an exaggeration. I mean, if Muslims were not colonized and they were writing their own history, it would become very obvious to them that by the time that Islam, Allah brings Islam to the world, Islam is the only 
reminder or the hearkening back of religion as a social agenda, as something that transforms, that that engages and wrestles with justice on this earth for the hereafter. Okay. So, and we talked about the, the, the whole segments of the population in Medina that chose to say they're Muslim, to take the Shahada, even some of them uh, performed rituals. You know, they, they would show up for prayer, whether consistently or inconsistently. Uh, some of them would pay the zakah, but not beyond the zakah. Um, and some of them would, as we talked about, socialize with those who are not with the program, particularly the Jewish tribes. So, note, Alam Tara ila ladina tawallaw qawman ghadib Allahu alayhim wa ma hum minkum wala minhum wa yahlifuna ala kazib wa hum ya'lamun. So, let's see, 14. Are you not aware of those who would be friends with people whom God has condemned? They are neither of you nor of those who utterly reject the truth, and so they swear to a falsehood, and while they know it to be false. And the, the hilfan here, the, the swearing is that they consistently tell Muslims when Muslims ask them about their suspicious behavior and what appears to be their divided loyalties and their, um, you know, it, it, it's in our modern age, because the Quran addresses all ages, and you must always read the Quran with an eye towards the age in which you live. Those people that you look at, and, and for me, when I, you know, those who you find uh, their position towards something like the Aqsa Mosque, their position towards something like the plight of Muslims around the world, like the Uyghur Muslims, their position towards Kashmir, their positions towards the, the genocide that threatens millions of Muslims in India, their position towards Muslims in the, the Rohingya, their positions toward the, the Muslim ban, their position towards um, uh, Islamophobes and the Trump, uh, Islamophobia and the Trump administration their position towards uh, Islamophobia in, in the West, their position towards the uh, banning the hijab in, in France, uh, the position towards banning the hijab in India, their position towards a whole, types, a whole set of things. And when you confront them, their response is to swear to you, to assure you that they are with you. They are fully Muslim. 
But Allah knows that they're liars. And Allah knows that they, in fact, do not adopt your causes. And they are not committed to your causes. But here, اتخذوا أيمانهم جنة فصدوا عن سبيل الله Notice, their speech, their speech act, the way that they deploy speech is to take religion itself as a camouflage, as a way to hide their immorality. It is al-sudud an sabilillah that exposes the Jannah here. It is the 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 fact that they do not pursue the path of God. They are not committed to Muslim causes. They are not committed to what any decent form of morality identifies as Muslim causes. In our day and age, I would put Al-Aqsa Mosque as, as center of this issue. I would put something like Islamophobia as center of this issue. For, for our day and age, when I find Muslims that minimize what Islamophobia do, does, or that try to persuade you that um, it's no big deal that there are, you know, an Islamophobic president of the, 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 the main superpower that exists in the world. It reminds me, right, it, 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 if these ayat weren't revealed to us to, to shed light about such situations like this, then I don't know what does. But anyway, that they, in fact, use their face to camouflage their immorality. That they, they, they take religion not to empower the moral path of God, but to, in fact, to obstruct the moral path. So, you know, even from the very beginning, Allah is alerting us that religion can be used in ways that are diametrically at odds with the moral path. And that, and that in the, in the hereafter, they will, you know, in the same, their when Allah tells us that in the hereafter, Okay, pause here for a second. In tadabbur. Pause for a second. Allah is telling us that when Allah resurrects them in the hereafter, they will swear to God as they just like they swear to you now. Pause for a second. The reaction of these people is that they will find themselves upon resurrection in the hereafter, they will still swear to God and still assure God that they had no bad intentions. 
that they in fact were sincere, devout Muslims all along, just like they do with you in this in life on earth. What does that tell you? It tells you it is that self-deception can be so deep that the self-deceiving human being truly believes his own lies. I mean, they are in the hereafter. And when, when they know that God would know, but this is their truth. The corruption, it's, it's like when the corruption has, has set in so deeply. So the fact, the fact that you see someone who seems to you like a very pious Muslim, as in our very, the very day we live in, they seem like very pious Muslims. They do dhikr, they do whatever. But they come and tell you, oh, the Palestinians, we have nothing to do with the Palestinians. We have nothing to do with the Aqsa Mosque. We have nothing to do with, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't worry about the genocide that's, that's, that is, is happening, already happening, because there are... Every day that passes, there are lynching of Muslims in India and there are sexual assaults of, of hundreds upon hundreds of Muslim women in India. I keep reading human rights reports and, and they make you cry. Muslim world is completely silent and the, the head of India, Modi, is welcome in every Muslim country. The man who before he rose to power is responsible for the murder of 5,000 Muslims doesn't have a single Muslim country that, that even shuts its door to him. Leave alone the Uyghur, leave alone. So, when you find Muslims who appear to you like they're devout Muslims and you're confused by it, why are you confused by it? These are the same people who will appear in the hereafter truly believing that they're good Muslims. But they're not. Because why? Because saddu an They don't care about justice. They don't care about other Muslims. They don't care about the, 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 what a sirat al-mustaqim is. It shouldn't confuse you. Okay. Now, and Allah sums it up to us استحوذ عليهم الشيطان فأنساهم ذكر الله أولئك حزب الشيطان ألا إن حزب الشيطان هم الخاسرون This is the istihwaz al-shaytani. I better make sure I don't forget anything. I'll leave my notes. Okay. Al-istihwaz al-shaytani. Al-istihwaz is... How do, how do you put it? When 
there are people that could be shaitan that people who the shaitan could attract them meaning the shaitan entices them and they are still have enough wherewithal to sometimes resist and sometimes not resist and istihwaz as shaitani is when shaitan has managed to confuse you or to overtake you to the point that you your your very decisions all serve all flow in serving the objectives of shaitan while you think you are doing good you you no longer see wrong from right i mean listen every now and then and these are the the worst and the most horrible and the most horrid of cases i mean every now and then in I get someone who would contact me and tell me the following story. And unfortunately, it's happened too many times in, in that now I, I've... They'll tell me that their parent, their father, it's usually a father or an uncle, rarely a brother, but it's usually a father or uncle. That they pray, they fast, they sometimes even they are a pillar of society. They are an imam in the mosque or, or, or at least on the board of an Islamic center. In other words, they are, they're a medical doctor. They're quite, all, you know, they're, they're very respected in their profession, highly revered. Everyone respects them. But then, and it's, not always, but most of them are women, although in some cases they were not women, they were men. They'll tell me that through throughout their lives, their parent or their uncle or their older brother had consistently and systematically sexually abused them. Sometimes it's molestation, sometimes it, is, it goes much further away than molestation. When I was younger and I would hear something like this, it used to to say to destroy me is not an exaggeration. How could it be? I you know I just couldn't understand how could someone who prays five times a day, how could someone who fasts, how could someone who, and especially when I knew the person that they're talking about, you know, show up, and even some of them give khutbas, lead jum'ah. You know, I've sat in their khutab, and then I discovered that all along, that all these khutab that I sat and listened to, they were sexually assaulting their daughter. But the more 
you engage in tadabbur, in, engage in, in studying the Quran, you understand, istahwaza alayhimu shaitan. They have achieved complete unity with the demonic. They no longer, there's no separating barriers. They have, their religion itself has become a jannah, has become a form of deception. It's not, doesn't just deceive you, it deceives them. The proof of someone's piety is in their moral conduct. It's, you look at their sirat, you look at their sabilillah. Are they contributing to sabilillah? Are they are committed to the sirat? That is the proof of, of their religiosity, not the rituals, not the displays of piety in public. The truth of that, only Allah knows the truth of that. What happens to you when I see you in prayer? What, what, what is between you and Allah? That's between you and Allah. But your moral conduct, that's my business. That's everyone's business. What you do to other human beings, that so when Allah warns us that those individuals that as we will see later, some of them will even go and establish masjid, what the Quran called Masjid al-Durar later. But these people that Allah describes as istahwas alayhim shaitan were people that sometimes consistently prayed with the, they showed up for prayer, they prayed jama'ah, they would go away, they would, you know, some of them even took part in battle. If we do the CETA project, we'll come to know quite a few of them quite well. You know, took, engaged, participated in some of the famous battles. But Allah knows what the truth of their heart is. And the, and, and the, the material proof is in moral conduct. It, it come, it, the material proof shows when it comes to, are they committed to sabilillah or are they not committed to sabilillah? When it really matters, not when it, when they engage in ostentatious displays of piety and get you know a, a good utility from it by being respected and regarded and and praised and so on. That's a show. And the truth of that is between them and Allah. What I judge you on is your moral conduct. That's what I judge you on. So Allah told, told us that, and here there's, there's this duality as well, that it is, Allah informing us about the historical legacy of these people that despite the fact that they are formally or part of the Muslim community, that the Prophet ﷺ didn't exile them, didn't imprison them, didn't punish them, that Allah didn't tell the Prophet to, to expel them or kick them or, or, or whatever. Nevertheless, 
because this is you can't you can't purify society of shaitan. You can take measures in society to as much as possible protect against shaitan, but you cannot adopt the idealistic and naive belief that you that because you have displays of piety or that you force people as Saudi Arabia used to do force people to go to 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 the mosque uh, when the azan goes off or whatever that somehow you're protecting yourself from shaitan shaitan is is as the prophet sallam says it flows close to you like blood I mean, it's part of it's so intimate with human beings. So the duality that I speak of, so one is it's to tell us about these individuals, but second is to go back, and here is a normative warning as well, that if you are not kind of careful, if you do not understand the dynamics of what reality speech creates, and that speech could be for diagnostic purposes and for moral purposes as raising a problem and finding a solution to a problem, that if you don't value this type, this type of speech and respond and be responsive to this type of speech, and people learn that there's no point in constructive speech because there is no constructive act response to constructive speech, and that people, as a result, then engage in a najwa shaitaniya, in other words, in bitching and complaining and what's the point if i if i learn that every time i have a legitimate complaint and i bring it to authorities i'm i'm quashed no one listens to my complaint no, no one cares about my complaint what do you think is going to happen what's going to happen is people will engage in najwa shaitaniya they will become like a beehive of rumors and gossip and, you know, uh, um, and that will, in fact, result ultimately in istihwaz al-shaytani. You will end up in the nest of shaytan even if you don't want. And, in fact, then your religion will become, become a form of jannah, that you're, you are using your religion as a label to hide your impiety and your immorality. Look, look at so many Muslim societies today. If if Sahf al-Majalis, as we identified, is inclusiveness, you find that missing in so many Muslim societies. If in Nushu's is being proactive in moral causes, you find that missing in so many Muslim societies. If Jidal for constructive purposes, you find that missing in so many Muslim societies. So many Muslim societies 
if you have a constructive complaint because you want a constructive solution, you've in fact become the enemy of the people. If it is the role of gossip and conspiracy theories and, and you know, this group hates this group and this class hates this class and this, you find that rampant in so many Muslim societies. What is the net effect? In so many Muslim societies, their Islam is nothing but a Jannah. Their Islam is a label that covers, that conceals a great deal of immorality. A lot of immorality concealed behind the Islamic label. What is that if it's not istihwaz al-shaytani? What is that if it's not that you have fallen trapped to shaitan? Do you see? Okay. And then Allah reminds us here in the Ladina you had Duna Allah or Rasulah, Ulaika fil Azalin. Muhaddati Rasul, Allah or Rasul, it's the same word that from, that from which had is derived, right? Had is the limit, the, the, the boundary. So hudud are your boundaries. So territorial boundaries are called hudud dawliya. Why? Because they are the boundaries of the state. Al-hudud al-ilahiyya, although we often use that to refer to criminal penalties, but it is everything that is within the boundaries of the divine. Okay. Al-lazina yuhadduna Allah wa rasoolah. Those, although most of us here tell you that this means those who are hostile to Allah and the Prophet. Linguistically, it is not precisely that you are hostile, but it, it's even more than that. Those who fall away from the boundaries of Allah and the Prophet. Allah promises you you either understand the lessons of the Quran and instead of using Islam as a label, you actually live within the, the moral boundaries of Islam. But if you allow yourself to drift away from the boundaries of Islam, of Allah and his prophet, your fate is fil adalin. You will your fate is deprecation and well, how does um, Muhammad Asad translate as a lean? Most abject. Most abject. Say again? Most abject. Uh, oh, most abject. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the, your, your, your fate is most abject. It's, it's a complete deprecation because as in 21 kataballahu laghlibanna ana wa rusuli inna allaha qawiyyun aziz that 
it's the same that although we often read when we say katab Allah tell you that Allah is 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 foretelling that it is in fact the prophet or some commentators tell you that Allah is telling you that in the hereafter it is Allah and his prophets that will prevail but It depends on 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 how you define How do you define victory? If I if I tell you, if you want victory, you live within hududillah. Moral victory. It's like saying, it is Allah's law. It is the law, it is the divine law in, included in nature itself that those who follow Allah's morality will be the, will prevail. Prevail in what sense? Prevail morally. Will be the moral party. Prevail morally on this, in this earth, and prevail morally in the hereafter as well. Okay. Okay. Now, then, Allah takes you to even the heart of the matter. First, historically, 22, which says that there are people who ally themselves with their fathers, with their children, with their siblings, or their tribe, when all said and done, they care more about their family, their tribe, their clan, more than they care about Allah and the Prophet. And for those people, it is as if Allah is, is telling you that you cannot be Hezbollah, you cannot be the party of God, is if in fact your moral vision is that your morality, your sense of right and wrong comes from your blood, your tribal affiliations, your national affiliations, rather than Allah's revelation and this Quran and the Prophet Historically, you often, in this context, in, in this in the context of this ayah, the, you know, they'll, the in tafsir they'll tell you um, that uh, Abu Abaida ibn Jarrah or Abu Abaida Jarrah um, killed his father in battle in Badr. Um, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq uh, in ba also in Badr 
I believe, killed his son or fought was his son. Um, Musab ibn Umair um, in Uhud killed his brother. Um, Umar ibn Khattab fought with and killed his uncle and I believe in his uh, his cousin as well in bed. Who else? Uh, uh, Ali bin Abi bin Abi Talib um, um, several members of his clan and his cousins, several of them in both Batr and Uhud. So, in other words. In, in the tafsir, they always, you know, tell you, look, there are these individuals who, when they met their own blood in battle, they were so committed to the cause that they fought till the end, etc., etc. And you know, you could, and the way that this ayah is, is often approached is to tell you what it's talking about are those who were not similarly committed, like Omar or Abu Bakr or Ali or uh, Ibn, uh, um, Abu Ubaidah Jarrah or, or uh, Musab ibn Umair, or etc., etc. Et In other words, they, they, but there is, a, again, while yes, I I don't doubt, considering that everyone was related to everyone in in these societies, and considering that it was it was not at all unusual in these societies that if you violated the code of honor of the family or the tribe that your family or your tribe would turn against you and would be determined to liquidate you. And that's why in Badr and Uhud, the relatives of these people thought them out and considered it an ob personal obligation upon themselves to kill them. So, you know, I can't, I can't erase the dishonor that has fallen upon my family uh, when my son converted to Islam, unless I kill my uh, my son, and so the reason these, but to simply reduce it to these historical dynamics, I think again misses the point. Because you know most like like uh, the the reality of most Muslims, you know, listen to to these stories, and they they think that, oh, in order to, you know, be an Abu Bakr or to be an Omar or to be an Ali, that uh, uh, you must declare your um, father or your brother or whatever an enemy if they don't follow the, the real Islam. It's not, this is, this is not um, what, it, it is, it is taught, it is in the context of Al-Munajah and Al-Jidal and in this entire context that, that ultimately, notice, 
لا تجد قوما يؤمنون بالله واليوم الآخر يوادون من حاد الله ورسوله and we said من حاد الله ورسوله those who have obtained their moral being their moral standards their moral path not from Allah and the Prophet but from outside the boundaries of Allah and the Prophet so it comes and says if you don't want to end in Hizb al-Shaytan understand that in the same way that there, Shaytan has his party Allah has his party there is Hezbollah and there is Hezbollah Shaitan. Hezbollah is not about using speech to spread al-ithm al-adwan. It is not about creating societies that exclude others or degrade or demean others. It is not about societies that are morally inactive or that do not care about vindicating the rights of human beings. Hezbollah is about what is embodied in this Quran itself. Now, you stand at a juncture you, it's the same concept that you find in the authoritative and the authoritarian. The central idea of deference. All of us, in the way we navigate our lives, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, we are constantly deciding who to defer to and who not to defer to. Deference is who do you choose to believe? Who do you choose? Notice here. Choose to believe, choose to listen to, choose to be inspired by. All constructions of reality through speech or acts of speech or speech acts, which is constantly constructing realities around you. Who do you decide to defer to? Who do you decide not to defer to? Who do you decide to give the benefit of doubt to? Who do you decide not to give the benefit of doubt to? Who do you decide to believe? Who do you decide to disbelieve? And we are constantly engaging in these acts of deference. Now, when you engage in acts of deference, you are either... All of us engage in these acts. None of us are autonomous, independent actors, as much as we like to believe we are. We are always, our acts of difference are shaped by psychological influences and intellectual influences upon us. What are your psychological and what are your intellectual influences? If your intellectual influences are positions of principle in which you make the conscious decision. I am determined, I am committing myself, I am vowing myself, I am promising myself to 
hudud Allah to the God, the sovereignty of God, to the jurisdiction of God, i.e., to the moral principles of God. Otherwise, there are many people that will say Islam as a Jannah, as a label, as a as a sticker. But in reality, everything that shapes what they defer to and not defer to is their father, as the, as the Quran says, their, their father, their children, their, their siblings, their, their clan. Ultimately, when you look at them, you see the predominant influence upon them and the predominant, the deciding factor upon them is their family and their clan. This, this is why converts especially pose an opportunity. Of course, a lot of converts, unfortunately, they show a great deal of autonomy and, and um, volunteerism Volunteerism meaning independence when they convert, but then they end up deferring, they end up sort of adopting a new family and deferring to this family in a very clannish way after their conversion. But let's assume that they don't do that. Converts often, because they come to Islam not because they're simply following a father, a brother, a clan, and so on. They, they, they have a great deal of promise of being Hezbollah, of, in fact, because they, they, it's all a matter of conscientious decision-making. And that conscientious decision-making, in the same way they make the determination to be with Allah, Allah makes a determination to be with them. And in the same way that you find a lot of people who are born into the faith, what they're accustomed to is really to simply imitate whatever they... they, they so their system of deference is based on the assumption that Islam or Allah and his prophet are embodied and fully represented in their family members or in their clans. And because of that assumption, they simply follow whatever their family members and their clan is. And no further ado. Immoral paths in the same way that Allah comes and anchors this issue and says, Al-Nushuz wal-Ifsah is a morally conscientious act. You are not follow, deferring to your clan and your family is by its nature contra deference to family and clannishness is its natural gravitation is towards exclusion, not inclusion. 
and its natural gravitation it's towards apathy, not action. Do you see? It's it's all it's it all feeds in one loop after the other. There is an amazing coherence in Surah Al-Mujadala that so many people cite as the example of disjointedness. Indeed, it is a prime example of cohesiveness in the Quran. Indeed, now, final point. Look, the very fact of Al-Mujadila, the woman who rebelled against the har and went to the Prophet and argued with the Prophet and complained to Allah and Allah used her as an excuse to change the entire law. It is because she was the type of woman not to defer to inherited cultures and habits. If she had the mental, like so many other women, it, and, and we have numerous reports about the, the practice of lihar before the revolution of, of the surah and even after. Most women, okay, Zahar Zahar, okay, I know, and, and they defer to culture. But this one woman that rebelled and took the matter all the way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and induced a response from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a moral exemplar of precisely how to be part of Hezbollah and how to avoid being Hezbollah shaitan. It requires moral strength moral courage it requires action it requires that you 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 understand that allah when we are khulafa allah al ard we have an obligation to confront problems and solve problems not simply say, well, problems don't exist because we don't find it in our textbooks. Oh, um, last thing, um, I nearly forgot this. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, Imam Thawri, in one of the he in one of the traditions, he says um, that he's talking about his time, and he says that the early al uh, awwal He's talking about his time and and earlier generations, and he says that the early Muslims took. Ayah 22, and again, just so I'll read the translation so everyone is with me. It says, you will not find people who truly believe in God and the last day at the same time 
Muhammad Asad says, love anyone who contends against God and God's apostle, even though they be their fathers, their sons, or their brothers, or their kindred, um, or their kindred. Um, it, it, it says yuadun. Yuadun is to is to be amenable to and influenced by. It's not necessarily love. Uh, uh, okay. Anyway, so that Imam Tawri says that the earlier generations took verse twenty-two the, in Surah Al-Mujadala, and they they. They applied it to Nazalat for Sultan, meaning that they applied it to their relations to power. And he even says that um, um, Abdul Aziz bin Rawad, uh, that Abdul Aziz bin Rawad. Uh, at the time of Al-Khalifa Al-Mansur, got a message from Al-Khalifa Al-Mansur that Al-Mansur is demanding his, uh, that uh, Ibn Ruwad would, Ibn Ruwad is one of the early uh, jurists of uh, of Islam. Anyway, that Al-Mansur wanted Ibn Ruwad to appear before him. I don't know what business he wanted with him, but anyway. And Ibn Rawad escapes. He leaves town and hits the road. So Al-Mansur says, you know, find him and bring him to me. And then when they, they, bring, they bring Ibn Rawad, and Thawri reports that Ibn Rawad then cited, recited this verse in Surah Al-Mujadala, to tell Al-Mansur, Allah has warned us that he's taking this ayah to mean that Allah has warned us not to be, not to get too close to those in power. That, now, of course, I, I can see, I can see the connection in that if you, you know, the, the choice is either if the sultan is unjust, and at least if you fill in all the blanks, it's what it's saying is, if the sultan is unjust, if it's a mulk adud, as as instead of a khilafa, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a, a you know a secular type, uh, not even secular, but even immoral, unjust uh, power, um, that you have to choose either the path of Allah and the Prophet or a being friendly and amenable to uh, those in power. Here, it would be your Ashira, your your you know the, um, and and that this ayah was employed in the ethics of staying away from the venues and and halls of power. Um. Of course, I mean, I think it's an interesting narrative. I mean, it's a part of the, our history and our intellectual legacy. But obviously, it is far more expansive than that. It is not about just about not getting into bed with an unjust ruler. 
But you can't afford, if you want to be a part of Hezbollah and not to be wittingly or unwittingly a part of Hezbollah shaitan, you can't afford simply accepting the, the surrendering to moral habits rather than moral consciousness. You can't simply do something because it's your parents, it's your nationality, it's your tribe, it's whatever. It, it, to live a fully morally conscious life, it's life, it's, it's like truly, you know, uh, someone, I read someone saying that, oh, in, in Islam, an absurd statement that in Islam that Muslims are never expected to live fully, to, to, to convert to Islam or to become real Muslims as if converting to their faith when they reach adulthood. A statement like that tells me that this person knows nothing about the Islamic tradition. In fact, everything about Islam demands that even if you're if you're born into this faith is you become a convert to this faith all over again and live a fully morally conscious life or conscientious life okay alhamdulillah rabbil alamin this is surah al-mujadila tamat alhamdulillah this is my kind of surah converts rule yes Woo. thank you um Honestly, like, I think at the end, it just got me so excited because I, I you've started my notes from last time, but, you know, this surah to me is like the epitome of the surah of empowerment, and it's so important, even the story, that this is this is a woman who comes to the prophet. Um, and, and the power, I mean, empowerment for each individual, the power of speech, the power of, you know, each of us as individuals deciding, you know, even like when somebody says something to us, that hurts our feelings or treats us wrong or you know misunderstands that at that very moment we have a, a choice to make we can respond in a way that will create kindness and goodness and understanding or we can choose to respond in a way that just engenders you know just sort of keeps that that ill feeling going you know and i can every day i make i'm in those situations everything that comes out of my mouth i have to think about how am I going to make this person feel? Am I saying something that will allow me to be in the party of God and not in the party of shaitan? And a lot of times, like, one of the things we see around here is just don't help shaitan, whatever you do. And it's such a good, like, overall rule. I mean, you know, it's interesting, like, Google's thing is don't be evil. But, you know, for us, it could be just as simple as whatever you say, whatever you do, don't help shaitan. And I feel like this surah is just so... Um, so in, important for us understanding the dynamic of speech and our our power through our own speech um, the idea that words create realities um, and just the beautiful idea when it all comes together at the end of what is a moral exemplar in our faith i love that it's a woman in this story that she is testifying to what's truthful she is challenging she's she, you know obviously she has courage to stand up um, she's taking action. She's challenging the status quo, which is a lot of times what we say we do here. Um, she's resisting culture and inherited norms. 
again, the idea of being a convert all over again, convert versus heritage Muslims. I get emails from, you know, heritage Muslims who find us and say, I just, I want to take this road. I want to convert. I want to know about what's the right path. And it's exactly what, what Sheikh said at the end. Um, and then to just know that Allah is watching everything that you're saying and doing. Um, and if you have that dynamism, if you have that action, um, that Allah will aid you. Or that you know, or that if you don't have the dynamism, and you, you then Allah may not, um, and that ultimately you know we're we're testifying to truth and choosing Allah. It's so powerful. It's so beautiful. It's like this was a really really impactful surah, I think, for for me and for many of us here. Um, but just because it again underscores your own personal power. There's a reading group that that asked asked me what surah they should adopt. Yes, this was it. And, and I told them to, to adopt this one, right? Right. Uh, I, don't know if the, I don't know if this reading group is hearing. They will one. eventually because they watch but, after. They might maybe not hear right I now. Mean, I, I was sort of flattering them because by adopting the surah, <laughs> that means I'm, I'm, I want them to be what the surah calls for. A, a, an example of social dynamism, social in inclusiveness, action rather than inaction. So, it's another. We have this like standing joke around here where we have like a club of Mariams. We wanted to start a Mariams club of empowered women, but I think that this actually this sura is really great for that too. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll just put them all together and fire it up. Women power, <laughs> convert power, um, but individual power. I mean, honestly, like the whole idea of, of speech. And, you know, and it's just shocking that when you say that this is an example, this surah is an example of how no one was able to pull together the overall meaning that people find it disjointed. But for us, when you lay it out like this, it's so clear and it's, it just touches you so deeply and it just makes you see you know, yourself with um, such clarity. So alhamdulillah may, alhamdulillah, may Allah bless you and um, may we really internalize these lessons. Um, so we have just a little bit of time. If you guys have any questions you want to send through the chat, if anyone here has any questions. Okay, great, come on up. Have you guys all ordered your copies of the Prophet's Pulpit? <laughs> Made your list of your friends you're gonna get it to? Order, order yourself and, and then order some extra copies to give away. Just <laughs> um, actually uh, one point of clarification and then one question. Um, the, the idea of uh, um, I was so you were saying you know uh, people use their faith as a jinnah. But Ayman means uh, oath, so I'm wondering, is there like alternative readings of the verse, firstly, and then if it's, uh, what would oaths in this context mean exactly? I mean, it's... Yeah, and actually, th this is not, um, uh, um, Ayman or Iman, uh, even in the, even in the, traditional tafsir, they'll, they'll tell you that it could mean both. Uh, it could mean that they are swearing uh, that they are swearing that they are believers or that they have taken their very 
their very behavior as Muslim, as a form of Jannah. Um, the any man could also mean your belief. In the, but when we say Amen uh, belief, is it like in the specific context of these people who, you know, as becoming Muslims, they were essentially, you know, making an oath of like joining a particular community? Well, it, um, okay. They are, yeah, they, they're, I mean, part of their Amen is the, the, the pledge, the Shahada was a pledge mm. to follow the Prophet ﷺ. But even if we take, for instance, I don't know, if this takes too long, then I won't do it, but let's see. Uh -oh. I mean, that, that answers my question, unless you want to. I mean, uh, I'm just uh, seeing if, if I can do it quickly, if, if it takes too long. But it is, yeah, it's the, the amen, it's not necessarily that all of them would sit there and, and swear that they're loyal. Because some of them didn't even swear at all. Uh, it is the very fact that they pledge an allegiance to the Prophet they they pledged an allegiance to this ummah, uh, but their behavior leaves it creates doubt that in fact this pledge uh, is authentic or real. But um, what, what number sixteen? Are you trying to get rid of that page? No, I, it's um, uh, um, okay. So okay. Uh, uh, Muslims. كما يجعل المقاتل الجنة وقاية له من أن يصاب بسهم أو رمح وقرع إيمانهم بكسرة الهمزة أجعل تصديقهم جنة من القتل فأمنت ألسنتهم من خوف القتل ولم تؤمن قلوبهم So the, the Quran is, is both إيمان and أيمان but I don't think there is much of a difference um, And then on verse 21 you mentioned moral victory and um, it just uh, brings to mind a lot of different ideas about I mean how we can understand victory because in, you know I think many people will be like well you know I'm being a good Muslim and upholding principles but I keep you know experiencing all the, this loss and etc but it, for me it reminded me of just the idea of uh, living the, the good life or like what Aristotle talks about like eudaimonia you know mm -hmm. the, the good life is this process that happiness is not necessarily success 
and material gain, etc. But it's actually living morally and morally upright life. Um, and I'm wondering if that is that what you're getting at from moral victory? Yeah, I mean that. Yes, in part, but but it's not just that. Like in a lot of the bo books of Tafsir and or, or even books of Aqaid, they'll talk. They'll tell you. And when you take the, the idea of so it's either they're saying, well, it could be by sword, but it could be also by reason. Well, are they really talking about it? what do they mean by prevailing by reason. It is not necessarily that, uh, it, it is not the, 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 you know, the, the, the myopic way of saying, well, they prove their correctness by reason, or that they somehow become victorious uh, by reason. But it is that the upholding the truth itself is غَلَبَ the, the very fact that you, I mean, of course, I'm not. Ghalabatullah uh, is, is a foregone thing that in the hereafter. So we're, we're only talking. But just a defa'an al haqq or iqamat al haqq is ghalabal al haqq. The very fact that so. In my in my view, okay, you take someone, um, um, you take like someone like Salman al Oda, sitting in a Saudi prison all this time, or you take someone, the Ahmed Sibia, that poor guy that was a brilliant young man and and he's rotting in an Egyptian prison till now. Can anyone sincerely say that they've been defeated? I mean, the fact that Salman al-Oda is victorious, even though, and the person that jailed him is a defeated person, because he his very imprisonment elevates the truth, and so was Ahmed Sabir. So, yes, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of similarities between the Aristotelian idea of, you know, righteous living as, as victory. But I even mean it in a, in a less sophisticated sense, that iqamat al-haqq, just supporting truth, is a ghalab al-haqq. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it is because, you know, a lot of times you feel that Muslims want these imperial victories, like the you know an army defeating an army. Um, the very fact that Allah inspires in you the courage to stand for truth, and that your life becomes so that when you meet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in the hereafter and you say Allah you know I spent most most of my life in prison like I think of someone like Ahmad Sabia 
you know, took, went and studied, you know, Hebrew and studied Aramaic and, you know, spent all this time studying, studying, studying. And then just as he's about producing, you know, just finally reaches the point where people can benefit from it. He's grabbed and thrown to prison, and it looks like the Egyptian government is, is determined to, just because he's upset the, the Coptic church, is determined to have him expire in prison. And, but I think of him as in the hereafter saying, Allah, my life stood for a principle. My entire life stood for a principle. Isn't this ghalaba al-haq? Um, for all of us, we will look at him and we say, he is victorious, far more victorious than many of us that lived a very compromised life <clears throat> or very ambiguous lives. Um, so true. Uh, what is the dhikr for the surah? Um, it is... Um, where, where was it? It is ni uh, nineteen. Okay, great. The 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 um, the dhikr of the surah is the the more I would spend time. Often, I, I would end up reciting in prayer the entire surah to Mujadala, uh, just because of the, it's not a very long surah. But the idea of what the thing that, that really Allah opens your heart to is that I, I can look at my own life and I can see periods of my life where I can see myself as mustahwaz alayya min ash-shaytan. That, that all, and I suspect that this is the case for all of us. That it is so easy for the shaytan, for shaytan to come and trap you into a lot of vain endeavors. Trappings of prestige, of power, of reputation, of you know all, all the all the the, the the bells and whistles of existence, and and that and and for shaitan in the midst of all of that, to make you forget zikrullah and zikrullah is not you don't stop praying and you don't obviously you don't stop you know the ibadah, but Allah is not in your heart, because you are engaged in 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 very, you know, things that have to do with competing for things in life. And when, when, you, when, you, when you supplicate with this for hours, and what starts happening, or what happened with me, is that you, Allah just then allows you, your entire life to flash before you. It's like you see the entire... Uh, you know your your life from the time you were an adolescent to the 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 age you're in 
as if you're washing it, like you know, in the and and you you become terrified at the loneliness and wahsha, the the loneliness and the um, the utter desperation of drifting away from hududullah to uh, the the plains of shaitan that where Allah is you know things in life starts you know attract you for for a period but that the you know it, it that and that's when you start really the entire meaning of surah al-mujadara because law itself like the, the that woman that that elicits illegal solution law itself and islamic law itself can become a path to istihwaz al-shaytani you're a great legal mind you know all the you know complex legal doctrine and you can you, you have memorized you know this sharh and that sharh and this mukhtasar and that mukhtasar you, you know but is zikrullah really in your heart are you truly part of hezbollah uh, that's um I mean, just I'm explaining why this is the zikr and what the the, the dynamics of the zikr is with Surah Al-Mujadara. Um, it, it it re-educates you as to your attitude, your the attitude towards law. Law is not about your ability to read Sufi's usul or to present and learn the Sharhan al-Amidi's usul. Law, that's not what law is about. That's what your ego is about. Law is about finding solutions that, solutions that bring people closer to Allah, that befriend people to Allah, not alienate people to, from Allah. Uh, you know, all the impressive things you can do, Sharh al-Amidi or Sharh al-Subki or whatever, uh, that, that's neither here nor there. That, that, that's for your, you know, that, that's if, if, if you use that for the right thing, there is something. But if you use that just so people can say, look how impressive he is, then that's on you, not for you. But even as a person, not a law, legal scholar, like this principle. No, it's a yeah, and so of course I'm I'm just describing my my own journey with it, but you know it it's, it it applies to everything. It apply it's you can take it forget you know, shuruh al subki or amidi or whatever. You can take it for for anything because even Islamic work, everything, even Islamic work can become an ego trip. And you must be very careful that it, you're not you're not traversing the path of shaitan. Pay attention to your najwa. Pay attention to what you listen to and what you utter, what you hear and what you ask people to listen to, because shaitan is in the acts of speech. And the acts of speech could either open open spaces for shaitan, or make spaces inaccessible to shaitan. 
that's what the the core lesson from Surah Al-Mujadala. It's it's. It, I I just I don't know. It, it's like I I I always feel like um, if Muslims really understood their book, it is the most. There, it is the most remarkable text that humanity has ever been given. I mean, maybe that's why Allah had me read all these thousands of books and all these languages and so on. Maybe, you know, I read it to read all these thousands of books and, and for us to be bankrupt with the library that we have <laughs> just so that I can see, I can, I, I can testify that this is like no other text. There is no other text in, in the universe like this book. I forgot to ask you at the beginning um, if you could talk about your journey. You've already talked about your journey with what the content of the surah, but I'm just wondering about like where you were, how like what well, what were your Subhanallah Surah Al Mujadala, I mean I was it I it was um, after Surah Al Nisa I wasn't sure, uh, you know, I wasn't sure whether I should go in order, a chronology of the, the, the way the Quran is organized, or where, and, and I prayed, and at the back then, what fell in my heart was Surah Al-Mujadara. And, and I really wanted to understand, because it struck me when, you know, when, when, uh, when you're memorizing the Surah, when you're, you know, much younger and you're memorizing the surah, uh, it's a surah just opens up with this the, the, this problem of the heart, and then it moves on. It it seems like it just moves on to to, to the hypocrites, the munafiqun, and we have surah to munafiqun. We have another surah that is named the hypocrites, and I just read and all the you know tafsir that I read or the shiuch there uh, that I had learned from it. it some even sources tell you, oh, well, you know, it, it, it's, um, so, but why? Why this opening? And I, this is what had become an obsession for me. I wanted to understand why Surah Al-Mujadala, why, for instance, this woman with the Zahar problem, why when the Quran was organized, that part wasn't attached to Surah Al-Nisa? You know, the Prophet could have said, oh, this ayah belongs in Surah Al-Nisa, not here. So that became an obsession. And, you know, first you do your homework by reading everything that you, that you can get your hands on, whether published or not published. And then I wrote down a series of questions um, and sort of wrote a short outline of what my research, because what texts I needed to go to, whether, you know, Musallaf ibn Abi Shayba or Abdul Razak or, um, or pursuing um, certain hadith with certain isnads or certain akhbar or, you know, or, um, or even tracking, um, uh, anything that I could find about this woman in, in the sources about her life, when she died, uh, what, what became, when did her husband died, 
what was her impact in Islamic history. And then after this took, um, I mean, I remember it just, it took quite a few months. I mean, it took like three months of, of where I was keeping notes and researching different things and so on. And then came the point that I just, uh, uh, you just do tabut and you just uh, ask Allah to, to, to make the Quran to open your heart to the Quran and to to for the Quran to to open its its doors to you, and then it it mapped out very clearly. Then once I saw it, it became undeniable. It just it was obvious, and then when I went back and read a lot of the traditions I had read before, again. It, it was all obvious then because a lot of the, the, the narratives, uh, uh, it, especially the, the historical role of Surah Al-Mujadala, what it was telling people. Um, and we, we haven't gone into Masjid al-Durar yet, or the, but it, why, I mean, one of the questions that, okay, so... If the Prophet knew, they were clearly by I, we could identify them now by name. Uh, Hassan Farhan al Malki, in a lot of his talks, he mentions by name the same people who were troublemakers. But the Prophet never arrested them, never exiled them, never punished them. And I wanted to understand why. If they were such a headache, and they're even described as part of Hizb al-Shaytan, and no acts of violence were even committed against them. No Muslim, I mean, for all the traditions we read about how Omar ibn Khattab was a hothead, we don't have a single incident where Omar goes and attacks one of them. You know, we always have these, these uh, staged reports that, you know, Omar was about to chop his head off, except, you know, then the prophet stopped him and so on. But nevertheless, these people lived and died, known enemies of the state. And when, when you learn enough history and you do enough ibadah, what you, what you realize is because this was, yes, they were a huge pain for the prophet, and in fact, they were a huge pain after the Prophet ﷺ died, and they were they ended up some of them ended up feeding into the apostasy movement that Abu Bakr had to, and so many of the companions of the Prophet died fighting. But the point is that the Quran was teaching us a lesson. The reason they they had to survive, and everyone had to suffer their evil is that we learn that the responsibility of speech and the responsibility of moral decisions, they, 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 we wouldn't have learned this lesson if they were just wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and once you understand that, then it's just so many things just open up before your eyes. And you were saying that you haven't found this interpretation or the ability to pull it all together in the things that you read before that. 
least in your awareness? You know, so, so, alhamdulillah, I mean... You don't have to admit if you don't. Yeah, you, you know how hard <laughs> it is. I mean, even, even when you're sitting there talking about my books, you, you know, I wish you would have told me so I can absent myself from that part of it. <laughs> If I knew you were going to sit there and talk about, oh, okay, here's this book, here's this book, it's like, you know, but, but you know, I, I try to forget that you're, I'm actually married to you, and, and I say, okay, she, this is this crazy, uh, you know, fanatic yeah. woman that I, I, that I have very little to do with. Um, He's not good with praise, and I'm, I'm like all about cheerleading, so it's this like, that's the mizan. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, how are you doing on time? I didn't bring my phone, so I actually don't know what time it is. Okay, so let's just do, I know Brian has one question. So, um, alhamdulillah, thank you. Okay, so from Brian, assalamu alaikum. Um, ijma as an institution is often used to silence modern thought and interpretation. What role can ijma play in our age to encourage scholars to pay respect to the tradition before someone tries to, con before someone tries to contribute intellectually while not using it to silence new thought? Yeah, you know, Ijma is, is a claim that, if proven, calls that shifts the burden of proof, but should never be an irrebuttable burden of proof. So put it simply, first there's the claim of Ijma. A claim of ijma has to be proven itself, not assumed. So if you claim ijma, you bear the burden of proof of showing that an ijma actually exists. For people who don't know what ijma is. Ijma is consensus. And, and I will say, you know, of course, you know, there are a, a, a huge debate as what exactly counts in an ijma or not. But the, the thing is that Muslims often use the claims of ijma' in, 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 without even bothering defining the ijma'. But even if we take a workable definition, the ijma' is the, the, the consensus of the overwhelming majority of scholars. So, you know, that even if there is a few dissenting voices here and there, we can still say ijma'. Now, once you bear the burden of proof and you actually convince me an, an ijma exists, all that means is now the burden is upon me to respect this position and to presumptively assume that is correct. If I can see that ijma exists, that means I, my, the presumption is that this position is correct unless proven otherwise. So in other words, now I bear the burden of showing that what the consensus believes is actually wrong. It is very dangerous. People don't understand often that there, are, there were two, two types of claims of ijma. In the legal processes, the ijma was a technical concept. And it was often a technical concept like when the Supreme Court in the United States or courts of appeal say, say, it has always been the established doctrine in American law, or it is 
it is well known in our constitutional jurisprudence or what and it is a claim that everyone takes seriously but but it doesn't mean that it silences the possibility of showing otherwise in law it worked as a stabilizing force outside law the way it functioned in theology were like a lot of social debates it 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 often was claimed by various groups in political competitions and it was claimed far more carelessly and was far less discipline in social socio-political conflicts than it was in law but Ijma shifts burdens of proof. It doesn't prove anything conclusively. And it's very, because it's very dangerous when we, as Brian points out, when we use Ijma to, because, I mean, listen, I can't tell you the number of times that, um, and this is actually very, very recently. I was talking to to someone about uh, the, the all the the poor souls that Saudi Arabia executed the eighty one. I mean, horrendous. Uh, and it's uh, and of course you got uh, well the ijma is that the all the Shia are uh, kuffar and they're they're you know the fact the mere fact that Shia you could execute them. What type of that is an example of how dangerous the, the claim of Ijma can be. Uh, when when Ijma is is actually used to you know to 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 claim that you can violate the sanctity of human life, you can declare you know millions of Muslims to be just simply heretics. Uh, Ijma is a critical concept of law because law requires stability, but it is it all it does it says there is a presumption, the burden of proof is upon this side, that side, and if I concede there is an ijma over something, it means I must recognize that now I bear the burden of proof of showing that the position I'm defending, if it's against the ijma, that it is a reasonable and defensible position. That, in fact, the position should challenge the ijma and maybe invite the ijma to reconsider its stand. Um, we, like a lot of other things, we, uh, we, we need to revisit uh, institutions of authoritarianism in our tradition. Uh, because uh, look, uh, look at the mess that we've created, um, and and this mess is is brutal, and it's extremely demoralizing. Okay. Well, I think no one else here had a question, right? Okay. I think we've gone over time. Thank you, everybody. Remind them, Tarawiya. We have Tarawiya tonight.
Don't forget to buy your copy of Rabbit's Pulpit. And this is, we've done all your Aid gift listing for you. This is your present to every single person you were planning to buy a present for. So simple. Is the intellectual revolution that you speak about, is it just your invention or does anyone else actually subscribe to that? There's a Jamal. There's a Jamal. There's a Jamal on the intellectual revolution. Okay. We're gonna we're, we're we're ready for our, okay. uh, for an intellectual revolution. We're, we're we're tired of Muslims being at the bottom of the barrel. So <sighs> we now we gotta but we gotta fight back. This is an easy way to fight back. You just buy it and you give it to your friend and say okay. you know, here we go, people. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Other than the revolutionary craziness, it's yes. the, it's the last ten days of Ramadan. So, you know, could be uh, Laylatul Qadr if you assume it could be. It's only uh, on Grace, I'm sure, nights. is going to be praying for the revolution, <laughs> and inshallah, it will be she'll pray on Laylatul Qadr, and Allah will answer her prayers. I just have a much more humble point to make you know, make an effort to, to increase your ibadat in the last 10 days. Every Ramadan that comes is a, is a landmark in life, is a you know, major point in life and you you never know if if you will be around in the Ramadan that follows. This is only in Allah's hands. Um, and a wise person always treats the last ten day, the last ten days of Ramadan as if they're the last ten days of Ramadan they will experience or they will witness. Um, Every book you buy, you can tell Allah, look, my intention was to start a revolution, <laughs> and it'll count extra in the last 10 days, inshallah. <laughs> yes, what she said. <laughs> yes. Okay, you guys have a wonderful rest of the weekend, and inshallah, we will uh, hope to see you next week. Oh my gosh, wait, so is Aid next Sunday? Uh, Sunday, still. There's still another weekend of Ramadan. Oh, Okay. Fasting. We, we still have another weekend. Yeah. Okay, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, we're not done yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. We will see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.